Welcome to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. This is episode eight, Michael. It is. It is the eighth episode, and we are going to be talking about Gaming the Stage, Playable Media and the Rise of English Commercial Theater by Gina Bloom. And this Uh, is a brand new book, right? Yeah, this is like the newest book we've done so far, I think. Um, It was the summer of 2018 when it was published, so like six months ago, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, by University of Michigan Press. And it is, uh, if you Google this, you will find its webpage, and it is also open access. Um, And I mentioned this in the last episode, but like, like, I don't know, we, I think this is also our first open access book. So that means Mm -hmm. you can just like read this thing online if you want to. And I will say, so my plan was to buy this book, um, and just for scheduling reasons, because I'm I'm kind of have a different kind of commute now that I did, uh, like six months ago, and uh, so I never got around to buying the book, and I just read the open access one, kind of in my you know in between whenever I could cram it in. And I will say that the University of Michigan, Michigan Press, yeah, mm-hmm. that their online open access reader platform is the best one I have ever used. Wow, interesting. Period. It is readable, it's usable, it kind of works like a Kindle, you know, it's mm-hmm. pretty similar to the, that kind of EPUB reading experience. Two-page spread is really good, it, it does a good job of, like, filling the screen, there's no, like, weird margins it creates to get certain characters on. Oh, but, that's good. Yeah, it only took, like, 15 years to get here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm looking through it right now, it is very nice. I read, um... A uh, an advanced reader PDF uh, thing because mm. uh, it had been sent to me. So um, because I was you're famous and fancy. Because I am famous and fancy. No, because I I asked. <laughs> um, because this book is extremely extremely my thing, um, and the sooner I read it, the better. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do it here. Um, and Gina was kind enough to send it along uh, back before uh, it had actually published. So yeah, um, uh, Gina uh, Bloom is the professor, just to give a little bio here, she's the professor of English uh, at UC Davis, <clears throat> and she's been there since 2007, and this is her second book. Her first book was called Voice in Motion, Staging Gender, Shaping Sound in Early Modern England, um, which sounds like it might be a very, very different book, but I was, uh, so I've read, I read that book for my dissertation. Um, and what was one of the surprises of reading this book, because we think like, you know, oh, this was a book on sound, <laughs> and then this is a book on video games, mm-hmm. uh, or games, I guess. Uh, what ends up being interesting is noticing how uh, her interests in the earlier project show up here, specifically in terms of um, how she's thinking about embodiment um, in sort of the, the phenomenological phenomenological approach that she takes in certain respects because her earlier book um is all about sort of like the problem of sound of course is that there is no sound recording medium in uh the 16 and 1700s uh so uh all we have like a lot of the thinking on um sound in that period is is uh sort of pivoting on how ephemeral um, sound actually is hmm. and that ends up I think influencing the ways that she talks about games here as well um, which we can get into yeah it was interesting to me I, and I'm glad you that you brought that up because I was going to ask you about it um, I, it's interesting to me that 
that the lived experience and phenomenology specifically gets flagged that way shows up so often here. And when that previous book, when she cites her previous book or, or talks about the same concerns, it's interesting because um, one of them is, I think, in the cards chapter or no, maybe backgammon where she's talking about uh, masculinity and mm. uh, masculine friendship. I forget off the top of we'll get into that, that but yeah that is the cards chapter but okay yes. um and so in the cards chapter she kind of talks about that and she talks about how she has previously dealt with this topic in a general way in uh her previous book and yeah i, I was wondering if it was through the same method or if this book was bringing a new method to it but it sounds like you're saying that she has like a shared i don't know uh concern in a way of approaching gender um, yes yes no very much so um, so, uh, yeah, um, that's, that's that. Uh, do you have any questions or anything you want to say before we kind of get started talking about the book? Well, we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, it's probably just worth repeating here. You know, I was sharing with you cause you asked me, uh, how did I find the book? Uh, you know, <laughs> how did, did I enjoy it? Um, and I told you I was really surprised, uh, because this is, you know, not a disciplinary book for me at all. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I imagine you'd feel the same way if I were like, Michael, we're reading a book of film studies now. Yes. Um, uh, you know, because there's the the chance that this is all inside baseball and there's not a lot for me to take personally, you know, in, in a broader media studies that um, that the early modern theater analysis would give me. Um, and that wasn't the case. Um, I think that this book is at least the, the methods and kind of the intro and the laying of the stakes. I think that this book is doing really interesting stuff for game studies in a general sense, meaning that it is pushing methods uh, and pushing modes of analysis that I just don't know if other people are talking about so much. And it and what I appreciate is that Bloom is at Davis mm-hmm. um, with uh uh, Stephanie Bullock and Patrick Lemieux, who wrote Metagaming, which we will certainly get to at some point on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with Colin Milburn, who I have a huge amount of love for as a scholar. Um, Colin Milburn's written a lot of different stuff, but he wrote a piece called, Mo- or a book called Mondo Nano, that's kind of about nanotech and scale and scalar modes of media analysis. Interesting. It's a very interesting book. Uh, it's it's uh, kind of all over the place, but but purposely all over the place. I mean, he's trying <laughs> to point to a big system, you know, of of thought. There's an amazing chapter where he looks at the way that uh, Department of Defense uh, funded organizations go to video games and rip off their concept art to then present as the future of warfare. <laughs> um, it's amazing. There's there's some really great stuff in that book. Um, but um, so I think that these people, I, 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 all these scholars at Davis, I think are amazing. But I also think that they are not in the main line of game studies, meaning that if you are someone in a sociology department or a media studies department um, that doesn't have a faculty member who is very invested in up to the minute game studies, mm-hmm. those books might not show up on your radar until you do a little bit of research yourself. And so I'm very excited that Gina Bloom is is talking to those people at her same institution and doing a bit of, of conceptual promo for them, um, because I think that that strain of game studies that kind of looks a little bigger, a little bit more theoretically invested, a little bit more weird. I think Colin Milburn's work is weird in a really productive <laughs> and good way. Um, I think that that is what I want to see exported into other allied disciplines. Um, Great. So, so I was excited about that. Great. Yeah, no, this book was also very exciting for me. Um, 
I mean, not just from the game studies angle, but like this is one of those books that I actually have some some slight like complicated feelings about in that mm. um, there are there are points in this uh, book where where Bloom just makes claims that I've been like thinking like someday I'm going to make this claim, right? It's one of those, one of specifically, and of course we'll get into this, but specifically the way that she's talking about how um, the fact that this is a commercial theater, how this is very significant um, coming out of in the 16th century and how that sort of impacts the, the history of media. Um, the way that she's getting into that is like, dang it. Like that was, <laughs> I haven't written this essay yet. You can't do this. Uh, but also it's, it's kind of, um, it's very validating because it means someone else was thinking along the same lines. And then also it means that like, I can do something else now. I can just cite this book and be like, you know, she's done all the work. Now I get to do something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always uh, gratifying that someone does the work like in your head, you want to do some kind of work to enable a different kind of work down the road. Yes. And it's always gratifying to be like, oh, thankfully someone did that work. So I don't have to. <laughs> well, that's, which is kind of, you know, uh, one of the early books we read for the show and a, a book that I'm going to bring up several times uh, over the course of this one is uh, Shira Chess's book um, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Ready Player Two. And that's a book that does a lot of that work for me, where I was thinking along those very same lines for a long time and trying to make that argument and trying to cram it in different places. And Shira Chess comes along and does this just knockout work, um, making very similar claims to the ones I wanted to make. And I was like, oh, thankfully, someone else is thinking along these lines so I can <laughs> uh, kind of pick up from there, which is, which is you know, that's when academic work really feels uh, compelling. Like, like you have someone out there who thinks the same way as you and that you can implicitly talk about the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so this book has, just to give people a map in case you haven't read the book, um, it's got an, an introduction and then four body chapters. One is kind of methodological, and then there are three that are about specific games. So chapter two is about cards, chapter three is about backgammon, chapter four is about chess, and they all have kind of attending plays that get read alongside those games. And then there's an epilogue that is kind of about the connect and what these readings do now, uh, if that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say that's fair. So yeah, that's the that's the broad strokes um, kind of <clears throat> look at this. In uh, the intro is, I mean, what you would expect from an intro, kind of a, a snapshot of the entire book, uh, sort of laying out uh, in fairly like clear terms, like the theoretical orientation that's going to be here uh, and. Uh, sort of what's going to be the rest of the book. Um, mm-hmm. So she begins uh, basically by saying that there, something that I've been saying also, uh, <laughs> that there is a uh, meaningful connection <clears throat> between theater and and games, and like sort of especially contemporary digital games, um, because the theater is one of the, as she puts it, one of the earliest media technologies for interactive play. Mm. Um, and that is a fairly interesting thing to say because we don't normally think of the theater as being interactive uh but i think actually bloom has a fairly ingenious way of of eventually getting to what she means by this um which manages to go beyond and i've probably talked about this on the podcast before um go beyond sort of common sense or not it's i guess it's common sense for in the field right but um one of the things that a lot of uh like when we think of Shakespeare in his time period, one of the things we don't really realize is that the theater was new mm-hmm. um, in in 
like a very real sense. Like, of course, there had been like the the concept of the theater had been around since, you know, ancient times. But the theater as a place in England, uh, especially like was not really a a thing, right? Like the theater was not a location, a building that you went to. Theater was um, a kind of practice that was set up during times of festival or like for a specific end. Um, and the 16th century sees the, the invention of a commercial theater that is a particular place that is in a, like it is there, like people pay money and they go to it. Like uh, this sort of, uh, instigation of what um other scholars have called uh the kind of beginnings of a mass media culture hmm. yeah uh and she sort of compares uh the the public event nature of the theater to uh like sort of performance-based games things like dance dance revolution and guitar hero <laughs> um and then also she talks about gambling which we've talked about before uh but that also gets uh really like gambling as uh, a sin as a, a sort of theological or like cultural problem um but then gambling also as a sort of weird mirror of the new commercial theater where you had to pay before you went into the theater to actually see so there was a real sense that like you could get ripped off yeah and there's a long kind of discussion later in this book that's about gambling in the the uh, the difference between laws and rules mm-hmm. um, that that comes up around gambling, um, which I, which I think is really interesting. Um, it, it is it is it is fascinating to me that gambling is such a big part of the understanding of games for such a mm-hmm. long time, and then when game studies as a field um, forms, um, we lose that part of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. you read a bunch of game studies books, and you're, the chances you're going to read about gambling are kind of slim, um, yeah. in a general sense, right? Unless it's a big theoretical kind of of approach to it, which mm-hmm. is fascinating to me. Right. Um, and I, you know, there here in this part you were talking about, especially that um, that play or that play or the theater was less a place than a practice. Um, mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting here that I just did not know, which makes a lot of sense, um, that Ludus right the the greek word for play was both up until early modernity it was both games and plays the performance of stuff uh which of course yeah (laughs) (laughs) but uh but i didn't really think about that i didn't realize that was part of the historical record um yeah in that sense so no it's it's very interesting um how uh yeah that particular bit of games genealogy which I think, I guess because probably it seems maybe sort of minor, like theater seems very, very safely its own thing. Um, you know, but like the the, the, the Protestant, um, the really hardcore like Puritans at this time, when they're railing against the theater, they're also railing against holidays like Christmas. They're railing against like dice and cards. Like it is all for them. Like Ludus as a concept is, is basically suspect. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, Every basically anything enjoyable um, is something that is uh, you know cause for sin essentially, mm-hmm. um, which is another thing that I think is really ingenious about this book uh, <laughs> because um, we I think uh, generally speaking we probably think uh, of theater and games as so distinct, but one of the points that Bloom makes here early on is that games in our fairly limited sense of um, 
like tabletop games uh, or board games or like what she calls like historically were called uh, sitting pastimes, mm-hmm. things that you sat around a table to play like cards, backgammon and chess. These were actually like these predate the theater. So um, m- like sort of methodologically, a really cool thing that I think happens here is she says that the the, the audience didn't really know what to do with the commercial theater, right? Like, she is basically arguing that uh, these plays, by displaying um, the plays that she talks about, all have games in them. By uh, presenting a certain relationship to the staged representation of gameplay, they are training the audience to understand the commercial theater in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of goes back to uh, the fact that uh, sitting pastimes were often a spectator sport in this period. Uh, you would go to your um, tavern um, or one of several taverns and you would just like watch other people play cards or you would watch other people play chess and you know you probably would bet on who was going to win and who was going to lose and um, it was a very sort of like socially like anchoring practice right uh, almost a community building kind of thing um, and the theater Bloom says, sort of takes this uh, scene that everyone would be more or less familiar with of watching someone else play a game and they put them on stage and this ends up raising all sorts of fraught questions because um, you know how how am I in the audience supposed to react to uh, characters doing something where normally I would be like I don't know like muttering to my friend or like shouting out advice or like placing a bet um Mm -hmm. so this is what she means when she says that these are kind of playable media um that by having these games on stage in some way um they are inviting a kind of effective investment from the player a kind of a sense of of because i know how this game is played i am suddenly more interested in what is happening on stage yes um Right, it, which is interesting to me. Well, I, I have two things I want to say about that. So the first one is that I'm glad I didn't know anything. You know, I don't know anything about the history of cards. That's not a thing that I know <laughs> about. Um, and so this is actually very illuminating to me around because this this practice of the play of cards clearly mm-hmm. like existed long after this, right? You know, for yeah hundreds of years after. And I guess, you know, the World Poker Tour and things like that are still versions of that. You know, we watch that on ESPN2 or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, um, like, like, big American figures like Billy the Kid, who were known <laughs> as, like, both outlaws but famous card players. Hmm. Or, uh, not Billy the Kid, but Wild Bill Hickok. That's what yeah. I'm thinking. And they're like famous card players, and I've never understood that. I, you know, I, I guess I just always thought they were like, oh, they win a bunch of money, but they were outlaws. <laughs> and so if they won a bunch of money, why did they have to do that? But uh, this is it, right? They were entertaining. They were entertainers yeah. in that way. And being a famous <clears throat> card player in the, the quote-unquote Old West or whatever, right, clearly mm-hmm. is part of a suite of skills you have. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with gambling winnings, which is what I would think now. Right. Um, so this is very illuminating, like historically, in in that way for me. The other thing I would say, and and uh, about your last point there about games being used as a method to get you used to this new medium, mm-hmm. is uh, that her bibliography here is very interesting to me um, mm-hmm. because what I would do immediately, right, is I would just look to Foucault. 
Um, these, <laughs> these are a set of disciplinary and, and bodily practices that have a discourse um, and a material component, or discursive and a material component, and they operate on people. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she's very unwilling to, to make that move. And, you know, if, if you're unwilling to go to Foucault, maybe you go to Althusser, right? The, the claim being that you're interpolated by mm-hmm. the theater in a particular kind of way, and you're made into a certain kind of subject. Mm-hmm. Bloom's not really, like, game for any of that, right? She's, she's trying to do something a little bit less um, top-down and a little yes. bit more networked. But she's also yes. not really flagging that. So it's interesting to me that there are these really, to me, very purposeful methodological moves. Because she, she knows all these things, right? These are all oh, parts yes. of our discipline. Um, but she is tactically choosing not to go that way. And actually mm-hmm. ends up somewhere where, that I think is very close to Shira Chess's designed identity. Yes, extremely so. Um, um, so I like that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I would say, um, I mean, I'm just going to, uh, you know, read a couple of quotes here about, this is still from the introduction, um, but sort of big picture what she thinks the theater is doing. Uh Staged games, this is from page 13 if you have a a paginated copy, staged games, in effect, conjoined the participatory and the commercial, offering spectators a way to interact more intensively with commodified theater and, in effect, turning spectator consumption into a mode of production. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of point number one. And then on page 18, she says, conceiving of the theater as an information game played between its producers and its audiences gets us out of a stalemate in the current study of early modern audiences and the question of how much power spectators had. Um, And I think this ties into your point about like sort of the Foucault or the top down stuff. Um, And I think you mentioned this in your notes, uh, although I don't know if it was here. Um, Oh yeah, no, it's in chapter one where she takes, as you put it, she takes a dig at new historicism. Mm-hmm. Um, so like one of, one of the big temptations for me here in this episode is going to be going like totally inside baseball on early modern studies. Um, but, uh, just to like sort of set out what I think, um, one of her reasons for doing this more networked approach is because, um, for a long, long time, early modern studies was fraught with a kind of, um, well, what some people called, uh, the subversion containment debate, which is oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah right, sorry so <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a real humdinger of a word <laughs> it it sure is so basically what happens um is new historicism is is kind of the methodology that comes to dominate the field um in the 80s and 90s um and what new historicism is uh is essentially a kind of um very deeply foucauldian uh, method of reading uh, not just literature, and this is sort of one of its big innovations, is um, new historicism comes into a field that has been very much about, like, plays and poetry and, like, you know, men in tweed jackets sitting in leather chairs, like, puffing their pipes and being like, well, John Webster isn't as good as Shakespeare, but he's pretty dang good, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of thing. And new historicism kind of comes in and um, says, like, all cultural texts are sort of, like, on a level playing field, right? I'm going to read King Lear next to, um, like, demon possession pamphlets next to, uh, like, crime pamphlets or, like, pamphlets about, uh, like, 
how like prisoners are treated and things like this. And I'm going to show how all of these various as these textual aspects of the culture um, are reinforcing each other in service of, you know, like the consolidation of, of state power in, in the 17th century or something like that. Um, so one of the things that ends up happening here is, uh, the, the way of thinking about early modernity and about the past is, oh, it, it, and this is like a critique of of this method, right? But um, the the way that we end up thinking about the past always becomes like the past is always the way it is because it has to become now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we look to the past through this kind of um, Foucauldian lens, and I say Foucauldian with quotes there because I don't think it's actually like I think it's a, a misapplication of really what like the full complexity of what Foucault like can do, um, but. Uh, you know, it turns out like, oh, you know, we, we're we're saying this is like a huge radical like intervention in the field. But really what we're doing is we're just saying like, here's how the monarchy had to become more powerful. So then it could be like destroyed so we could get like modern, like liberal Democrat stuff like. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the subversion containment debate comes about because there are people who don't feel like the the disciplinary function of cultural texts is is necessarily something that is what operating at 100 percent full capacity um but then the sort of response is uh well how do you know right like how do you know if anyone in the audience is actually getting like some sort of uh, radical idea the the if you want to trace this back to like a specific um essay it's probably um stephen greenblatt's uh invisible bullets um, where he talks about King Henry the uh, Fifth, um, the play, um, and it's is like let's see what is the date on this? I'm just double checking. I think it's 98 or not? No, not 98, 88. Um, so the thing about like Henry the Fifth is that it's um it's a, it's a history play and it's a war play. So it's about like kings and kings having wars and like to what degree are wars just and therefore are kings like just that sort of thing mm -hmm. um and the really weird thing and i say really weird very loosely there because it's probably not that surprising the really weird thing about henry v is that you can read that play and you can come away thinking wow henry's a really good king and like kings should always be like valiant warriors who are going to like lead us into France so we can kick some ass or you can read that play and you can be like, wow, this is really cynical, right? Cause you can see like the performance of kingship and how it's like not really sort of inborn, how it's kind of performatively arbitrary. You can see Harry doubt himself. Yeah. And to right. my memory of that play, there's a lot of inside outside, meaning that you get like uh, internal monologue, but not really internal. I mean, he's talking to people in the court and then external performance for the troops and things like that. Exactly. So Greenblatt comes in and he basically says um, what the theater does is it acts as a kind of release valve. Um, when we watch, when we quote unquote, or like when early moderns watched uh, Henry V, what would happen is uh, they would see sort of the cracks in the ideology of, of like monarchy, of absolute kingship and things like that. They would see sort of how this system doesn't work. But because of how it was performed, because of that weird player, that ambiguity in, in staging, um, in the end, people come out more inclined to 
like believe in the monarchy, right? It's not mm. perfect, but this is how it works, right? By seeing it work, they become more inclined to believe that it does work. Um, the other sort of like example he has here is um, I think Richard Harriet, who goes to um, the Americas and he writes about, and this is part of uh, Greenblatt's example, um, Harriet uh, sort of in his own accounting of meeting indigenous Americans uh, talks about how like they're they're they think the telescopes are magic and compasses and things like that. Um, and uh, they like incorporate like the, the indigenous people that he meets, like see his, like what we would call technology. And they, they're like, Oh, this is like analogous or this fits into our cosmology in some way. Mm -hmm. And Harriet's response Rather than being like, oh, wow, like, I have totally given the lie to these people's religion, um, and, like, therefore, like, doubting his own commitments, right? He's like, oh, yeah, of course that's fake, and this makes him even more of a Christian, right? Mm. Because he never he never wants doubts his own commitment to religion when he sees, like, how he is um, sort of you know, in influencing uh, uh, these indigenous people that he's meeting, or he thinks he's influencing them, influencing them in a certain way. So basically, um, uh, there was, so the, that's where subversion and containment comes from, right? The, the theater or like cultural spaces generally um, generate a sense of subversion. Uh, like, oh, here is, here is the truth behind what you think is really operating at the high level of ideology. And then it contains that subversion. Hmm. Um, and people argued about this for 20 years. <laughs> this was like, this was 20 years of the field was like, how much power did the audience have in generating their own opinions? Gotcha. I mean, yeah, right? this is something that also, uh, you, you know, this is a debate that is also happening in cultural studies, um, you know, post 1985 or so, and mm -hmm. it continues to happen. Um, in, in order to solve these debates, at least in media studies, what you do is you just draw a more complicated map, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like, like, uh, you know, if you, if you're curious, go back and look at pictures of the circuit of culture from the eighties and then look at someone's quote unquote updated circuit of culture. And what you see is, <laughs> is not, I don't, I don't think a more complicated debate about agency uh, of of receivers or of audience members or whatever, you just see a more complicated map of what all these processes go through, mm -hmm. um, and that you know going through that and, and you know much like you, you come into this field after this debate is quote unquote solved, or at least after these people have uh, picked their places. <laughs> right. It's it's yeah. It wasn't solved so much as we stopped talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone just made up their mind. Uh, yeah. Whatever graduate program you went to is the opinion you come out of. Um, and that's very similar to what happened in media studies. Uh, and I just came out like a strict Foucauldian. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, the structure determines what comes out of the structure. There is no agency. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, no. everybody. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah it's so interesting that this is a, that these are parallel debates that are happening. Right. So yeah, that's the sort of, um, context that I think Bloom is, is arguing back like she's gesturing to it right and she one of the things she's saying in her study of gaming history um is that this opens up a space for what she calls uh, embodied practice uh which is a way of sort of um like acknowledging that sort of 
individuals and institutions uh like work together like it's not so much like uh there's some sort of ideology installed that gets uh downloaded into people's heads while they're watching plays it's it's a more sort of fraught process uh that relies on a lot of other things that may or may not um extend beyond the theater uh and so um in the end she is uh not conser- conservative is not the right word, right? In the end, she, she, as you said, has a kind of Foucauldian view in that what these plays are doing is teaching people how to be consumers. Um, but she's not uh, sort of, she's not quick to believe that like this was sort of inherent, this was inevitable. She is interested in looking at like basically how the theater rigged up a, a disciplinary apparatus in order to make this happen, right? Like, there, there wasn't a clear way for, for this change to be made. <laughs> yeah, and I have a quote somewhere from around, like, 14, 15, 18, somewhere around in there, uh, where you've been reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have pagination, so I just, sorry to everyone who reads my notes later. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, she says, how the formal structure of a game provokes and helps develop competencies in a game's players and spectators. Um, which is maybe a little bit more... Uh, I like the evocation to formal there, right? Mm-hmm. That there are particular methods of uh, information communication, of staging. Uh, and she gets into that in the chess chapter where she's talking about multi, multi-tiered stages. Yes. Um, where some people are interacting and doing things and above them, say upstairs from them, there are people playing chess or whatever. And those mm-hmm. things mirror one another. Um, that there are... Uh, they're, they're just formal methods of doing all of that stuff. There are applied uh, stagecraft, dramaturgic, dramaturgic um, moments mm-hmm. that make this alliance of games and consumer behavior in the theater all one thing. Right. No, and it's, yeah, it's so cool. I love how she does that. Um, she says that she wants to consider, and this is moving into the first chapter, she wants to consider playtexts as, quote, supplements uh, to the kind of evidence usually considered in histories of gaming. Mm-hmm. So what is really cool here is that she's not just saying, um, or she she's saying, like, you know, when a game appears on stage, I think sort of our instinctual response whenever a game appears in fiction might be to evacuate it and make it sort of purely symbolic. Like, these characters are playing chess. That's because they are, uh, you know oppositional to each other or something right yeah. it, it, it's like a thematic it's uh just something that communicates this relationship um and what she says basically is no in in these contexts at least um the way that the audience knows how to spectate chess matches or card games the way that they know how to play those things in fact is teaching them how to watch the play because um in the same way that uh when you're, uh, you know, watching a card game or playing a card game, you're sort of keeping track of who's played what card, who's put down what, who do you think has what. Um, that sort of uh, multivalent kind of planning or thinking um, is in some ways analogous to the ways that uh, they are being taught to watch plays, which is um, sort of early modern plays are, of course, we... I think a lot of people also think Shakespeare plays are like a character comes out and says like, here I am, like Richard III, he comes out and he says, here I am, I'm evil. And then you watch him be evil for like two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But uh, when you stage these things, of course, what ends up being really interesting is that you have characters who come out and they speak to the audience and they say, here I am, here's what I do, and here's what I'm going to do. And then you watch how they lie, right? You watch how they aren't like making good on the things that they've said. And you can mm-hmm. see how characters develop different motivations and um, sort of like you, it's also, it's like watching a sitcom, right? Where uh, in a classic sitcom setup, uh, two characters have a misunderstanding because they are like referring to what they think is the same thing, but it's actually not. And you can like, as a viewer, know this person is thinking this, this person is thinking this, and this is why they're miscommunicating. Yeah. Right? This is where the complication of the plot is coming from. So um, essentially she's saying like, because games uh, are games of information, or these sitting pastimes are games of information, um, they teach the spectator to understand plays as games of information, of tracking who knows what, who has what motivations, how are they changing, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I you know I I, I think I'm tr- I'm trying to think of moments in other media where this happens, and I think it's actually kind of fairly rare. Um, my immediate chess thought uh, when you were talking about that is, of course, Professor X and Magneto in the first <laughs> X-Men film. Oh, naturally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but right, that, that the two of those characters playing chess with one another uh, across the, I don't know, couple films that they're in, mm-hmm. X-Men 1 and X-Men 2, that that is, of course, this s- stage setting for... Um, the relationship between the Brotherhood of Mutants and the X-Men and, and their antagonism over what mutants should be doing in the world. But then I immediately think, oh, well, th- this is also like um, a-, a method for recognizing that they're playing the same game and that they agree on certain rules um, mm-hmm. and things like that, right? But even that doesn't jump us up to a mode of spectatorship um, mm-hmm. that that is supposed to do it uh, or that's supposed to... Uh, uh, kind of draft us into a particular mode of experiencing the medium. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, the other the other thing I think of, particularly in film, is that Lars von Trier in the '90s would say that his game or that his films were a game with the audience. Um, and there's a, there's even a book called that's about that. It's called like Lars von Trier's Gaming Cinema or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is at least theoretically a way of um, of of training a particular mode of spectatorship. Although, to be quite honest, I don't know what that buys us when we're talking about <laughs> that guy's films, uh, or if we should be talking about that guy's films. But um, yeah, I'm, you know, beyond that, I don't know how often. What, I say all of that to say I don't know how often this kind of move really happens um, in media studies, which is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, that's so this sort of the first chapter is her laying out um, a lot of this uh, sort of big picture broad strokes uh methodological and sort of uh like sort of like i mean and i want to i want to stress like these this isn't just like interesting for media studies right this is an extremely interesting way of thinking about staging plays for early modern studies right this idea that um a staged game uh is doing more than just being a representation that is in fact it's, it's a way of like pulling people in um and she sort of goes to all of the early modern um writing about games that decries them because like it leads to sloth and gambling and you know they she talks about you know it was illegal to play card games on certain days in this time right mm-hmm. like uh 
that might not be something that you know you would think of if depending on how how much history you've read but it was like absolutely a concern like oh are people going to play are people going to gamble on the sabbath right is is this going to happen um and one of the things that she makes that i one of the points she makes that i think is interesting um and I'm quoting here, uh, this is page 43, part of what drives these larger cultural debates about recreation is a recognition that games compete effectively for people's attention, creating allegiances that are beyond and can supplant those of state and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to pause there and think, and because I want to say that I think that is really, really interesting, right? There is something there. Like, uh, there is... Um, there is a truth there. Like there is something about sort of the immediate experience of these, these games and sort of like these communities of gameplay that indeed might, uh, sort of pull you away from, I don't know, the dominant religious or like political ideology. And at the same time, um, the point that I would add, and I don't think she's denying this. I just don't think it's like happening in this time period at this moment. Right. They can also become unified within capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I think that's definitely something that we're heading toward, right? Like, sort of, uh, like, capitalist ideology, especially, like, contemporary consumer capitalist ideology, uh, as uh, what happens when all of those other claims to individual attention um, become kind of, like, put in the back seat, And recreation does become, in fact, a valid and, uh, like, I don't know, encouraged uh, thing to do with your time. Yeah, I mean, I I think that to well, I, I, th- this part of the book made me think of a couple things. Uh, so mm-hmm. so one uh, related to what you're just saying, I think that though the modes of attention, the way that the the governing system is concerned with attention, mm-hmm. um, is very similar here as it is now, um, in the sense of look at the last twelve months of weird moral panic about Fortnite. <laughs> and look at the way that religious figures here are concerned about people gambling. And it's very similar. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that like that those are the same thing, but it's the same set of concerns, meaning that uh, we had one way of life, and now there's a slightly different way of life, and that is disturbing. Yes. And it's disturbing enough that like the New York Times needs to write about it as a moral problem. Yeah. Um, so I think there's at least some sort of isomorphic or... Uh, you know, like body plan similarity between those types of discourses. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, what I think is interesting that that's kind of a part of this uh, is that there is a way that the the two constants of the time period she's talking about are are religion, a particular mm-hmm. mode of religion, and games. Uh, and the state is incredibly inconstant, right? So she she does this laundry list of different. Uh, proclamations that are made by the state around games. Uh, you know, this year you can play games. Two years later, you've got to burn every game in the town. Um, mm-hmm. The days that you can play games changes. Sometimes you can buy licenses. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes certain people can buy those licenses. Um, there's a way that the state gets shown as this like completely arbitrary, you know, <laughs> uh, contingent force that has no, um, you know, it's unpredictable to a certain way. But your religious system, beyond its particular state-based form, that's basically the same. And the the rules of backgammon don't change. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you just hide your backgammon set and wait a couple years, you can go back to playing backgammon. And there's probably something very powerful about that at the time. You know, 
right. I think I think about the way now that we consider it, while I was reading this in this kind of like revolution of uh, different policies about games. I was just thinking about the way that we think of privacy now, which mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, every six months we get very, very concerned about like whatever Facebook is doing, and then we forget about it for a little while, and it's kind of in the background. <laughs> and it becomes very important because someone's talking to Congress, and then it goes away for a little while. It seems like our level of concern about our daily practices in that way are uh, sometimes need to be very focused on, and sometimes don't need to be focused on at all. Um, and so it seems like this kind of concern about attention and what we should be paying attention to and how we should pay attention to those things um, has always been around in some form, or at least has been uh, instanced from the 1600s until now. And yet, no matter how concerned you are with Facebook's privacy mechanisms or whatever, um, the, the rules of backgammon still don't change, even now, right? Or the rules yeah. of Dota, Dota 2, <laughs> they don't change. Um, <laughs> So, so I think about that, that, that games provide a, a, a kind of, um, I don't know, structure or baseline or foundation of experience and that they can always be returned to, mm-hmm. um, even if we're supposed to be doing other stuff. Right. And something related to that is <clears throat> she points out how kind of the... Um the solidification of of games and sort of like rule sets and we can actually talk about this uh so she one of the things she points out is that in in early modern usage um they talked about games in terms of not rules like when you sat down to play a game and you're like what are the rules you would ask you wouldn't say that you would say what are the laws yeah right what are the laws for this game you would ask about rules or you would talk about rules, but rules meant something more like what we consider strategy. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting, <clears throat> an interesting little drift. Uh, and one of the things that she says, um, I believe this is how she explains this. Uh, she says as like, basically as printing uh, becomes more widespread and sort of, you know, concomitant to that uh, literacy is spreading. Um, the ability to communicate uh, rule sets uh, changes, or rather, like the ways that people are thinking about rule sets uh, change, because we stop thinking of uh, laws as sort of maybe immutable. Rules aren't just being communicated like from person to person, right? They're being mm-hmm. written on like one of the cards in the deck or something like that. Um, those become like particular sort of strategies for playing the game. Uh, because there's a recognition that everyone will kind of change the rules or they'll cheat or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the uh, sort of mechanisms of the game become recognized as kind of um, agreed upon and to some, some extent arbitrary. Um, and at the same time, uh, games can also provide uh, these really interesting like schemas for mapping other types of information um, that then can undermine because... Uh, rules are kind of understood to be impermanent or flexible or like can be abrogated in certain instances um then certain like received types of information can be undermined so like one of the examples she uses here is like a deck of cards that gets printed with um it's like all of the all of the known countries of the world at the time um like they're all assigned to and it's like it's a regular deck of cards right um but like you know there's like a ruler or something like the ruler of the country or something is like printed on it 
And what ends up happening is you can play a game of cards with this deck, but because in, like, depending on the actual game that you are playing with the, the cards, there is nothing sort of inherently better about one card or another mm-hmm. or one place or another. Right. So even like sort of the the English providential history of like, oh, we're the greatest nation, like God has chosen us and is operating through Queen Elizabeth and blah, 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 all this stuff. Like, regardless of that, you could play a deck of cards uh, in this like or you could play a game with this deck of cards and like England could lose. Yeah. Right. Like or like whatever England's associated um, suit is or something like that. It becomes a kind of like early modern version of Crusader Kings. <laughs> right. Like I'm yeah. thinking of they have like there's like a DLC that they have for Crusader Kings where it's like basically what if the Aztecs invaded Europe? <laughs> yeah, it's called and, like w- the the Western Sun or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 interesting because it's not quite as narrative focused as, as Crusader Kings can be or would be, but it's it's a similar idea of like, all right, so here we have all of the nations of the world, um, and now like you know what happens when we make them into cards, and like suddenly the country that we're in isn't the one that's the Trump suite. Like what happens then? Mm-hmm. I think that there's something very interesting going on here with uh, playing cards because it is a system, as you're pointing out, of equivalency. Um, Everything gets to, I mean, there's a hierarchy within it, but the playability, the creation of a hand, all those different things uh, mean that while there might only be four kings, all of those four kings are equivalent cards. Um, And so the discussion that she has about the deck of popish plots. Yes. Right? Which... Uh, you know, some are not real. I mean, you know, they're conspiracies. Some are very much real. All these different things, but they get treated as equivalent across the board. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's almost as if you made. I mean, we we have a contemporary version of this, right? If you remember uh, immediately post nine eleven and the run up to the Iraq War, and then in the Iraq War we had the like axis of evil playing cards. Oh um, yeah, or like the terrorist playing cards that were that the United States were hunting. That that was a big part of. I don't know, at least Southern culture at the time. Um, or, you know, it's like if you made a, a like a com- contemporary conspiracies deck, you know, <laughs> with Pizzagate or whatever oh on it. Oh my God, right? yes, no, my QAnon deck. Yeah, I mean, but, but quite literally, that's what these yeah. are. And it's a way, like you're pointing out, you know, it's a way of um, taking... It, it's analogous to, and I guess this is the argument she's making, but it's analogous to the way she's trying to get us to think about the theater and the game, because the form of the game is encouraging you to think about these actors on the cards in equivalent ways. And so mm-hmm. it does all these different processes of encouraging you to think about the world within a particular kind of structure. Right. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, like, and that is actually a good sort of transition into the first sort of reading chapter, uh, because it's on cards. <laughs> oh, I want to, can we, can oh, we pause really yes. quick? I want to yeah, say one more pause. thing. So, yeah. so, so she makes, whoops, I just smashed it into my desk with my whole body. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, I, I, something I just want to point out really quickly for, for people is that she makes a, a kind of a methodological bid here in this first chapter. And we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but in order to put phenomenology first, Oh, yeah, we do tend to talk about this. Meaning to put experience first. Um, there are... I was thinking about this uh, yesterday or the day before, whenever I was finishing up the book. Um, you know, how we would communicate this to people who are not super invested in these conversations in the way that you and I are. 
Um, and I think one way of doing it is just to lay out kind of like three big paradigms of thinking about the world or, or methods for doing academic work. These are not exclusive. These are not um, the only ways of doing it. These are often all flattened together, but these are useful heuristics, you know, ways of asking questions. Mm -hmm. So the one that's really popular in the 20th century and the 21st century is going to be uh, ontology. So the study of being. How is an entity or a person or uh, an object in the world, how do they exist? Um, sometimes that has metaphysics that go to it. This is big abstract philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, another specialty. But I, I love it. <laughs> I'm all about it. But we're not, we're not talking about that today. <laughs> um, another way would be epistemology. Um, so the study of how we know what we know. Study of knowledge. Um, and so this is uh, kind of that kind of Foucauldian argument that we were talking about before. Uh, I think we can quibble on that. But it's, you know, how do the systems, um, how do the structures we live in, how do the discourses under which we live, how do they determine how we understand the world around us? Mm -hmm. And the, the other one would be phenomenology, which is how do we talk about the experiences that people have? It's, you know, the, the study of phenomena, quite literally. Um, how do we talk about bodies in particular in the world without reducing that to metaphysics and without reducing it to simply the way that they cognitively process that or talk about it or understand it? How do they experience that world? Um, and so that's what, what Bloom is very tactical in, in saying here is that the method that she is privileging takes us to phenomenology first. Mm -hmm. um, and part of her reason for that, and I find this fascinating, as soon as I read this, I was like, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, um, and I like talked about it immediately because I was like, this is a brilliant way of talking about doing historical game studies. So the, the broad strokes of, of Bloom's argument here is that we might not know what it's like to be someone who's sitting in the first performance of Hamlet. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have access to that. We, we have some material around it. We have the text of the play. We have all these different things that we can make assumptions about. But it goes back to all the same problems that, that you were talking about before, Michael, of how do you know, you know, historically. But she says what the benefit we get from game or from plays that feature games is is that short of some slight rule changes, backgammon has not changed. Mm -hmm. So we can, as far as the experience of reading this text and understanding how backgammon plays and doing a comparative analysis of those in order to illuminate both, we can we can embody that. We can have yeah. the, that same phenomena. Um, yeah. And I think that's a very powerful claim. It, it is, and... Um like in in that first sort of reading chapter that I just mentioned, right about cards, uh, I'll just go ahead and say like right up front, um, she does a reading of a scene of a card game in a play uh, by Thomas Haywood called "A Woman Killed with Kindness," that is fantastic because otherwise, like I, I've read this play you know several times and like the card playing scene feels incomprehensible, <laughs> like it is so weird. Um, but it is because uh, the characters know the game that they're playing and they're talking about it. Um, and they're not sort of like narrating every single thing that's happening. And so what uh, Bloom ends up doing is she like pays close attention to how they are talking about the game. And she uses that to reverse engineer like the state of the game. 
Yeah. Right. To figure out what is because it's not just like random stuff is happening and these people are saying like card playing dialogue. Right. Like there is actually a game that is suggested to be played right here. And if you pay close attention and if you think about how like the the rules are supposed to work, uh, you can understand like what is happening on stage right with these characters um in a way like she she illuminates that scene in a way that i have just like never really seen before <laughs> um and it's great yeah uh, and and i think that's a powerful i don't know if this works across the board mm-hmm. uh, you know i i think that there is something i think this works for a particular time period mm-hmm. but i think if you for example right um there's a scene in i believe jurassic park 2 where the T-Rex <laughs> is like stomping around, I think San Diego, I think is where they are. Maybe yeah. LA, somewhere. No, it's San Diego. I, okay. I don't know why I remember that, but it's San Diego. <laughs> they take the dinosaurs to San Diego. Okay, uh, maybe for the zoo. Um, <laughs> but uh, so they take the T-Rex there. The T-Rex is just stomping all around. He's being rude. And there's a scene where it's doing something. I don't know. It's in the background and there are some children sitting in the, in the, the foreground and they're playing Final Fantasy VIII as a two-player game. Um, and I just remember being very offended by that at the time, but also you, us knowing about final fantasy eight in that scene doesn't, Mm -hmm. does not illuminate that in any way. There's a way that games now and games since the eighties have been set dressing maybe, uh, to a certain Mm -hmm. degree in a way that, that in these plays it's not set dressing, you know, it is, is uh, incredibly important for the actual mechanism of the play. So, right. Right. Also like. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'm. I also think of um, Spike Jones's her. That yeah. like that scene where he plays that weird VR game. That's just like a tiny little like robot monkey man is just constantly insulting him. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's not a real game. Like the game is like a thematic point to prove that like this guy is really lonely and his technology kind of hates him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, these chapters, um, the reading chapters, will try i think to give give the listeners what they need to know because they probably don't need to know every single detail about the plays that are covered uh because most of them are probably not early modernists like me and will probably find that very boring um but i do want to say kind of as we begin here um one thing that's worth noting is that uh bloom's archive that the plays that she is working with is really really strange and i mean strange in a good way uh because she is looking for something that is so specific and and kind of something that hasn't really been talked about uh in these terms that she is going to like plays that i have read um in fact there's like only one play that she mentions that i haven't read but she is like she ends up getting a kind of diversity of texts in a way that we very rarely see. There's a kind of, and you know, I have written mostly on Shakespeare, um, but I am technically a comparatist. My, my dissertation was comparatist looking at different um, dramatists and different dramas and how they uh, sort of differently or comparatively engage with certain topics. Um, And she's doing that really, really well here because she is like by looking for card games, right? She ends up with Thomas Haywood's A Woman Killed with Kindness, which is a 1607 play and pretty well known, right? It's not Shakespeare, but Thomas Haywood is like well known. He, uh, A Woman Killed with Kindness is probably his most famous play. Uh, and it has a lot of interesting gender stuff going on in it. And like a woman starves herself to death in this really like spectacular fashion. There's all sorts of weird things to talk about. Hmm. Um, 
But then she also talks about Gammer Girton's Needle, <laughs> which is a play from 1533. So it's sort of... Uh, isn't even like a commercial play, right? This is uh, before like commercial plays come into existence. Um, of course, we have like medieval drama, um, and we also have sort of humanist drama, like uh, plays that get written by schoolmasters essentially for their students to perform. Hmm. Um, and very often these are like sort of educational and they can be very allegorical. Um, but Gammer Girton's Needle is probably one of the weirdest ones of this bunch. Um, and it's more or less contemporary with the other really weird one, which is uh, Ralph Royster Doyster. Um, <laughs> these plays. Everything, all of these sound made up. Yeah, no, they do. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, you like, know, the famous play Gammer Girton's Needle. Right. So the these like when we think of humanist drama, we tend to think of them as being sort of because they're written by schoolmasters for schoolboys, essentially, they they tend to have some element of like classicism in them, right? Like learning, it's like, oh, I'm Jove and I'm Narcissus and like there's mm. you know, like we tend to think of it like that. Gammer Girton's Needle is an extremely weird play, and I have, like, this is probably the most I have ever read on Gammer Girton's Needle, like, sort of as a play on its own, rather than talking about it to end up, like, going into some later play that deals with gender or tricking, uh, like, duping in, in similar contexts. But, like, Gammer Girton's Needle is this extremely weird and vulgar play, right? A character, um, like, you know, ends up, um, like, fondling a cat turd in this play. Okay. Uh, there's lots of like little sex jokes and all this stuff. So, uh, and then she ends up going into, um, let's see, what is, what is the next game? Oh yeah. She talks about Arden of Faversham, uh, two angry women of Abington. She doesn't get to Shakespeare until her last, uh, like reading chapter when she talks about the Tempest. Yeah. And then she talks about Middleton's a game at chess. And I would say, uh, that those two, like those two plays are probably the most like, um, a-list plays mm. of uh, the sort of like body that she's working with. Everything else is uh, a kind of B-list play. Um, you could argue about Arden of Faversham or whatever, but uh, um, it's it's an extremely interesting archive, and I think it gives the argument um, a lot of weight within the field. We were talking about this before uh, with sort of your your stakes or your investment right you don't uh as someone who's not an early modernist you don't necessarily know what else has been written on these plays and yeah. how how these readings are distinct um but i just want to foreground that like these are very very distinct readings um some of plays that have been read a lot and some that have not been read not so much at all um and i think that's a really really cool thing so <laughs> hmm. yeah it's interesting and i mean do you have the sense we were talking about this a little bit too before the the show but do you have a sense that these are chosen because they feature games exclusively uh yeah i was just i i think my sense here is um she was looking for game or like she was looking for plays that featured games um in a fairly literal sense like uh, I don't know if games really show up that often. So, and that would, that might be, um, the one, uh, potential, like, chink in the armor of this argument, right? Is if we're arguing that these games and staging them was a way for, um, entraining audiences to, uh, interact with the theater, uh, we might expect there to be more games in the plays than there actually are. Hmm. Um, 
But that said, like the ways that the games that she does find, and there might even be more, right, that weren't covered in like even more obscure plays that it would be harder to write about because even people within the field don't know about them. Um, but, uh, you know, the way that she ends up uh, uncovering how these games are working in the plays where they exist, right, where they're staged, I think does really lend a lot of credence to the to the argument. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, um, this cards chapter is interesting then because uh, she is essentially arguing about cards as a uh, game of imperfect information. And this is an important sort of baseline way of understanding games for for this entire project, I think, as games as games of information. So in a multiplayer game, who knows what and how are they using that information and then how are they attempting to figure out the information that other players have and of course in card games when you're all sitting around a table you know what cards you have you don't know what cards the other players have but you do also know what cards have been played up to whatever point in the game that you are Mm, so um she aligns uh card playing practices with a humanist discourse on friendship um and sort of uh this is another sort of like deep in field thing uh friendship is conceived in the 16th century and um to some extent in the 17th century uh as basically a male thing right like Mm -hmm. women are not important to the discourses that that have survived at least in terms of their textual traces uh but we get a lot of we we get a lot of this like we get a lot of like female friendship um really especially in the 17th century. Uh, But the humanists uh, at this time have this really idealized way of thinking about friendship. And you can see this if you look at like the letters that uh, Erasmus and Sir Thomas More are writing each other, right? These kind of effusively affectionate letters um, in between like, you know, theological or ideological criticisms. Um, It's an extremely... uh, old way of thinking about friendship it comes out of kind of like the homosociality of of um, ancient greece and Mm -hmm. classical rome um where two male friends are understood to be essentially like the same person right like they have the same soul like they are they are two different souls in the same body and sort of notably just because if you're if you're listening you're probably thinking this uh this ends up like evolving into the way that we talk about marriage now Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Uh, Right. Um, so this is one of the reasons why, uh, like, <laughs> sexuality gets really weird in pre-modernity because uh, the the sort of perfect union of souls between two male friends um, <laughs> sounds really gay to us. Um, yeah. And arguably, right there's there's that there. Um, I can't remember what's his name. Um, there's there's an entire book. I I, I just want to I want to talk about it because I love the title. Uh, while you're searching, yeah, this this yeah. this like basic concept in the '80s in particular was the ground for a whole lot of like early queer studies, uh, queer yeah. literary studies in particular. Um, yeah, Alan, it was Alan Stewart. Uh, Alan Stewart had a uh, yes, yes, yes. Alan Stewart had a book called um, "Close Readers: Humanism and Sodomy." Um, in, in early modern England, which I, I love the pun of close readers there. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, so uh, this this sort of idealized uh, version of friendship as, as a union of souls, as kind of like knowing the other person's heart, right? Um, 
of course this is impossible. <laughs> like it's it's no one actually really knows each other, and this poses a huge problem for humanist discourses of friendship. Um, and what Bloom essentially argues is that card games in in these two plays, A Woman Killed with Kindness and Gamer Gurton's Needle, uh, become ways of massaging or working through the fact that there are always uh, asymmetries in in information and in knowledge. Um, that, uh, for instance, Gamer Gurton's Needle is this play about. Um, well, it's about a lot of things, but essentially what happens is that there's a character named Dickon who uh, is going around lying to all the other characters, basically trying to get them to fight. And this is a very classic, like, theatrical, like, vice character behavior. It's very similar, actually, to the kind of thing that Iago does in Othello, where Shakespeare kind of takes this character and uses it as an in- uses him as an engine for tragedy rather mm-hmm. than um, sort of comic misunderstanding. Uh, and the way that, like, for Bloom, right, the 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 pleasure for the audience comes from knowing why all of the other characters are fighting. And this is really important um, for games because there is a scene near the beginning of the play where there is a kind of offstage card game happening. And um, this basically, like, this idea of a card game happens, and then the character who's playing the card game, her name is Dame Chat, um, or Chat, she uh, is afraid that the person she's playing with might be cheating. And it also turns out that essentially the character, Dickon, who's been talking to the audience doing all of this mischief, he's been treating us as his friends, us meaning the audience here, um, but he also ends up cheating us, because he is withhold- He it turns out he is also withholding information from us. The entire play pivots on, um, where did Gammer Gurton, the title character, she's this old woman, Gammer means um, something like grandma, um, where did she, she lost her needle, right, her sewing needle, and mm-hmm. she is so upset and distraught, where is it, where is it, where is it? Um, and it turns out, like, you know, Dickon is the one who's been doing, he's been, like, setting everyone against each other since the beginning, including, like, withholding information from us about, like, how much he knows about where the actual needle is. He's Um, rude. He's bad. Yes. Right. And, but then because this is, like, a comic ending, right, when everything is kind of made clear, right, when all of the secrets are out, um, that feeling of of friendship gets reestablished, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the feeling of friendship gets established, then suborned, then reestablished. Um, and then A Woman Killed with Kindness is um, a very different play. It's a domestic tragedy, um, meaning it's not about, like, a high-standing or, like, mythological character. Um, it's about sort of this emerging uh, bourgeois kind of character named Frankfurt who marries a woman... Uh, named Anne, and then he takes into his house a young gallant named Wendell. Um, and this was a fairly common thing to do in that, again, like, this culture very much prized, like, male-male friendship, and especially sort of like an older man, younger man kind of... Um, apprentice isn't the right word, but the idea that... Um, you almost take on like a surrogate son or like a little brother, right? There's like this young, like you are so well off, right? You are so well established in your life that you can take this younger man and sort of like show him the ways of the world or like, uh, you know, just put up with him for a little bit. Um, (laughs) And then what happens in this play is that Wendell ends up seducing Anne. um, So Frankfurt is cuckolded. Damn it, Um, Wendell. Yep. Damn it. Um, 
And this sort of all comes together during a scene uh, where the characters are playing cards. And as I already said, like this scene, when you when I first read it, I was like, what in the hell is going on? Like what is clear, right, is that um, Frankfurt in, in the playing of the game realizes something is going on between his wife and his friend. Um, but uh, what Bloom ends up doing is showing, like she, as I said, she reverse engineers this game based on like little comments that the characters are making to show that this isn't just like some theoretical thing where it's like, oh, or symbolic. Like it turns out he's cheating, right? Dun, dun, mm-hmm. dun. Right. And it's like it's it's cheating because you cheat in the game, but also he's cheating in friendship and also his wife is cheating on him. Um, literally, he is cheating in the game. And this is the way that Frankfurt figures out that something is going on because um, Wendell isn't uh, like playing the cards that he's supposed to be. They're paying they're playing essentially like a version of Euchre or Bridge. Mm. Um, and. Um, that kind of imbalance of information uh, is, is again, like the, the thing that threatens humanist, like male-male friendship. Uh, as she puts it, like, Haywood thus points to the ways friendships grounded in playful contests are vulnerable for they rely on but cannot ensure consensus and cooperation among the parties, um, which mm-hmm. is a very, like, kawa kind of way of looking at this, actually. With those laid out, this is my question. This is my burning question, Michael. Okay. Okay. What's what's the modern version of this? Um, or maybe, what do you, I, not modern, when you say modern version of this, what do you mean? Our, what is our version of this kind of thing? Um, a, a, th- a, a work? Because, right, what's happening here is that a work is using games or using the expectations of audiences around a certain media practice in mm-hmm. order to ground their experience of a new kind of media object. So in my notes, I wrote that you could create something like Pewdleton, which is, of course, a combination of PewDiePie and Hamilton Mm -hmm. that would allow us to understand the economic relationship of of, um, streamers to the world around them via the more familiar format of the Broadway play. Now, would that be the worst thing ever made? Yes. But (laughs) But would it fulfill the function also, maybe yes. You know, I, I, I'm thinking yeah. like, like this is all well and good and interesting, but I wonder about what the applicability of the method, because if the method works, then it works agnostic of time period, I think. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? I think what is really interesting about the, the methods that Bloom is utilizing here actually end up being most effective in a modern uh, setting in talking about things like let's plays or actual mm. plays. Okay. Um, so an actual play podcast is uh, usually a recording of um, a group of people who are playing a tabletop game. Um, and something like, you know, Dungeons Dragons or Dungeon World. Uh, this is something like, you know, Friends at the Table. Um, shout out. What I think is sort of applicable in these instances, right, is the way that uh, streamers or let's players or actual players similarly vacillate between, or I should say oscillate actually, between um, talking about sort of the game as a game versus like the game as a story or an inhabited world and thinking about how um, like the ways that fictional characters grow, change, and develop 
in sort of concert with the ways that people outside of this narrative understand those things. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that it is both educational about what the game is and how that game intersects with people's actual lives. Yeah, I, I think that is um, probably where I would say this is this feels most applicable. Um, you know, part of the problem with maybe this first chapter is is that that homosocial idea of friendship is not gone, but uh, we don't really have it in quite the same way. Um, I'm sh- certainly I think we probably still think about imbalances of information, um, but uh, you know that this is I think the method is useful, but I don't know if we have I don't know if games or like similar things appear within media in quite the same way that they seem to be doing here. Yeah, I think that the part of it too is that there's a delicate balancing act that's going on here, or a juggling act between doing the method, talking about the games, and then doing the method to talk about the games in service to an argument of the chapter. Yes. Um, and so this first chapter is, of course, uh, the kind of homosociality argument. The the next one's going to have scopic dominance. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a, a, a careful act of threading all these things together and so you know when i was reading this first chapter i i was thinking oh it's kind of hard to extract the way she's reading these games from what she's trying to read from these games if that makes mm-hmm. sense uh, uh, right. uh, the method from the product um and th- that's why i'm asking for this you know this kind of thing but i think you're right that let's plays are actual plays or this or a mode of because there's a quotation that I wrote down where she says, Gammer uses gaming to create a phenomenology of theater going that rivals the classroom. And I think we could say something like, um, Friends at the Table uses the, the rules of a tabletop game to create a phenomenology of life experience or, or of contemporary life experience that rivals the classroom. You know, mm-hmm. that, that they're doing similar mediations. Um, but for different ends, of course, and with different tools. Right. So, yeah, that's sort of, that's how I would do it, or that's how I would sort of answer that question. Um, and uh, I just guess I want to just point out at the end of this chapter, she talks about Clifford Geertz in, mm-hmm. in the Deep Play essay, um, which I don't think it has come up before, but I just want to talk about it because I guess it's kind of, it's, it's an important thing. I don't know how important it is in game studies proper, it's pretty it's pretty important i think a lot of people okay. jump it just because uh, i think it covers a lot of um a lot of the same ground as calois mm-hmm. right that they're very comparable and geertz is you know rightly or wrongly associated with a lot of different things including like structural anthropology there's kind of a like uh the othering gaze right mm-hmm. that the Balinese function in this classical anthropological way that has some racial problems to it um, that Kawa has too right as mm-hmm. we talked about in our chapter but people tend not to teach that part of that book so I, I think yeah. maybe that's why but anyway sorry go ahead oh no 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 I just wanted to sort of I wanted to flag that <clears throat> because I do feel like uh, Geertz's uh, deep play is is kind of important uh not just in game studies but also like sociology and anthropology and things like that and also it's fraught with all of those problems and in fact uh Geertz is um a huge influence on Stephen Greenblatt uh who uh, I earlier said kind of you know is not responsible but like a good encapsulation of of a lot of the the subversion containment issues that in some ways this this book is arguing against um or trying not really arguing against but more like 
this book is interested in not arguing with those terms, right? It wants to do something different. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways that I think it ends up, you know, doing better on Geertz um, and on Greenblatt is because she is, because Bloom is interested in sort of the embodied experience of playing cards or playing chess and how that is sort of functionally the same, right? We can't, we can't other these people in quite the same way, right? Because they're, they're playing Euchre, right? I've played Euchre. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what it's like to play Euchre. This isn't, like, some sort of mysterious, like, the, the Balinese cockfight where I'm, like, learning about an entire culture, right? I am learning about uh, the way that uh, a culture in a particular point in time used something that I am familiar with to a particular social end. Yeah, and the, and the for people who don't know, the, the Geertz essay is just one... Or it's not just one. It's incredibly influential across a bunch of different disciplines, as Michael is saying. But Mm -hmm. the basic claim is that you can read the way that the Balinese do uh, cockfighting and the things that they're concerned about in the cockfight and how they manage their chickens and all those different things. And that tells you something about their culture. So it's a way of reading both their practices and their materials as a way of reading the culture at large. And so you can see why someone like Stephen Greenblatt or any new historicist would be very interested in looking at the material... the materials of the culture in order to read all of the the vagaries of that culture. Uh, one mm-hmm. thing gets to stand in for the whole, the part. It's, right. uh, it's a palimpsest uh, argument. I think that's mm-hmm. right. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and that's sort of how she ends uh, that chapter before moving into backgammon, unless you have something else you want to say about cards. I do not. Okay. So the next chapter, uh, and you, you already mentioned this for us, but uh, is about backgammon and what she calls scopic dominance. So whereas the last chapter was uh, sort of looking at the ways that friendships are sort of idealized, but also the ways that they are troubled and reinforced in, in gameplay and in stage on, on stage plays and things like that, um, she now moves into the game of backgammon and this idea of scopic dominance that is based very, very much in the actual construction of the early modern theater. Um, so what is necessary to understand here is that in uh, the first uh, commercial theaters, the most expensive seats were not the closest to the stage, which is the opposite of how things are now. Um, it is, in fact, like a total inversion. Uh, so the idea, like if you have ever seen anything about about Shakespeare's Globe in London, right? This is, they have rebuilt it, um, or like they have built a replica of an early modern theater that's more or less accurate, where the cheapest seats are the ones that are on the ground, right? They're not even seats. You go in and you stand. Um, and as you would imagine, um, in, in early modern England, uh, this is where most people who don't have a lot of money end up. Uh, and because the theater is, is weirdly receptive to a lot of people from a lot of different socioeconomic classes in a way that like things, generally speaking, in this time period are not, um, you end up with a fairly segregated uh um, theater audience in terms of like what they are able or willing to pay. So you have groundlings standing. Um, you have people in sort of the first row of seats, uh, which are just slightly more expensive. Um, and then you have sort of the highest seats, like the gallery seats. And this is where the uh, wealthiest people, like the actual aristocracy, are going to sit because they do not want to be 
anywhere close to all of the poor people, right? That is something that this theater, that the theater ends up offering is um, a way for these people to feel like they can abstract themselves from from their their lessers, quote unquote. Um, so that's a thing that we need to know. But um, one of the sort of interesting things about this chapter then is that Bloom argues that the theaters, the way that they stage games, and specifically how they're staging backgammon, um, ends up removing the the highest tiered audience from the stage to such an extent that they cannot really understand what is going on on the on the playboard, like on the on the boards themselves, right? Um, so scopic dominance is her term for that feeling of being in the highest possible seats and being able to look down and see everything. Uh, but the sort of flip side of this is that you now can't really intervene in anything. Yeah. Right. Um, and, that, and that intervention is almost like foolish. Yes. And that, and that the people who are closest to the stage or even on the stage, right? Those are people who are trying to become sort of pseudo parts of the performance. Mm-hmm. And that gets morally placed as like a lesser thing to do. Right. Is that right? Yes. Um, so this is this is where it gets really complicated, right? The um, theater go like the, the I should say the companies have very interesting relationships with different parts of their audiences and different writers have different relationships. Um, so like Ben Johnson, who is Shakespeare's contemporary just absolutely loathes his audience to a certain extent, <laughs> right? Like so many of his plays open with inductions with um, sometimes like with a character who comes out um, who like clearly represents Johnson himself uh, and just talks about how like you are all uneducated and none of you appreciate what I am doing, right? <laughs> you, you groundlings. Cause Johnson is the kind of guy who like really wants you to know that he has read Cicero, I that see. he's read Horace, right? Um, he makes like, he makes a, uh, jokes about like uh in english right but like in order to get the joke you have to understand like the way that an equivalent word would be um like gendered in latin right (laughs) uh okay yeah so he are you saying that ben johnson might have been he might have sucked as a person he he, he kind of sucked as a person (laughs) um uh, but he was also kind of really cool, right? He killed a man in a duel. He got arrested a couple times for sedition. Um, mm, kind of like the Fonz of, yeah. of this era. Yeah. Well, really, the best way to understand Ben Johnson is um, he is a man who cannot help pissing everyone off. <laughs> like, just literally, like, anyone he meets, like, somehow he gets on their bad side. Huh. <laughs> because he always thinks he's smarter or better than them in some way. Um so he really doesn't appreciate like how much the audience will talk during his plays because this is another thing that we know would happen um like the idea of a fourth wall between the action on stage and um sort of the rest of the theater wasn't quite solid right so there was a lot of heckling right Mm -hmm. uh actors in this time period had to be really good at basically shouting back to the audience to shut them down if they wanted the play to continue um so there's that um but also uh that closeness to the stage ends up um migrating up the socioeconomic ladder and and bloom gets into some of this where suddenly it became really and this 
became more important in the private theaters. So after the public theaters like uh, like the the Globe um, and the Rose and things like that, uh, we get uh, private theaters, which are more expensive. They are indoors. They're not outdoor like like the public theaters. Um, and uh, it becomes very much more of a sort of status symbol, being able to pay to go to the private theaters. And you can pay in these places, and you can do this to some extent in the public theaters too, you can pay to sit on the stage. Hmm. Um, because for a certain type of person in this time period, going to the theater was not so much about seeing the plays, but was about letting everyone else see you. So, like, dressing up in your finest clothes, paying to go to the theater, and just sort of sitting, like, off to the side of the stage. So everyone who is watching the play also has to see you and see how cool your clothes are. <laughs> the uh, other thing that... This is another connection to, like, the, you know, this is like celebrities going to Hamilton. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And, like, uh, the other thing that happens that I'm just going to mention because I really like it is, you know, they discover tobacco. And so people start (laughs) smoking pipes. Oh, no. it It becomes very, very cool to go up on the stage and, like, smoke your pipe. <laughs> um, and, like, the Ben Johnson and other playwrights, but Ben Johnson, of course, like, complains about this nonstop because obviously, like, what's happening is just, like, there are these huge tobacco smoke clouds <laughs> uh, that are interfering with the show. Um, well, another so- attachment to the contemporaries when you go and you, um, you know, blow huge vape clouds in Lin Manuel <laughs> Miranda's face. Yes! As people do. Yes. Um, he's like, please stop it. in the edit with your nice little commercial thing uh, that we do in the in the middle of these episodes uh just a quick correction from the last episode i was talking about an interview with frank lance um from an episode of tone control that's not from an episode of tone control at all it's from an episode of uh soren johnson's uh designer notes podcast um you can check that out it is still on the uh idle thumbs network i had the network right uh and the style of podcast right but not the actual title so but you can find that uh, fairly easily just want to give a quick plug that if you enjoy the show you should check out what we're up to over on patreon you for a dollar a month you can get a newsletter for five dollars a month you can hear danny and i do our uh, monthly podcast uh and uh there's just some fun stuff over there if you enjoy mages and murder dads uh you should uh you know help us out if you want to I say should. You could help us out if you want to. Oh, and at three dollars uh, a month, you can um, get our notes. Uh, I've forgotten to post the notes from the past couple episodes up there, but they will all be up when this episode goes up. So that'll be super cool. That's at three dollars a month. Anyway, uh, those are the things that I wanted to tell you. Uh, once again, you can follow us on Twitter.com/slash/RangedTouch if you want to get updates about when the show comes out and when we post things and blah blah blah. Um, I've got all those other plugs, uh, of course, at the end of the show. And importantly, something that isn't at the end of the show, because we decided it after we were done recording the next Game Study Study Buddy book. I don't know why I was going to say show or podcast. I don't know why I was going to say any of that stuff. Book. The next Game Study Buddies book is 
Games of Empire uh, by uh, Greg DePewter and Noah Wardrip Fruin. Um, it's a r- really big book in in kind of contemporary game studies. It covers a lot of ground, um, and it's got a lot of big capital T theory philosophy stuff uh, that Michael and I, of course, enjoy a lot. So it's going to be a cool book to check out and talk about on the podcast, specifically because there's all kinds of things we can dig into. Um, so I'm particularly excited about it, and I think Michael is too, and it dovetails quite nicely with this book and um, some other stuff that we're interested in covering this year. So um, we are looking forward to doing that. If you have a suggestion for a book that we should check out this year in the podcast, uh, of course, we're going to be doing 12 a year year if you have something that is new or old or kind of out of the field of game studies that you think might be cool for us to check out please link it to us uh, either on twitter or send us an email game studies study buddies at gmail.com i want to give a shout out to chris hunt who made the theme for this show that we play all the time so thanks to chris hunt you can uh, find some information about him down in the description of this episode if you like this theme and want to hear other stuff from it okay thank you for listening to my long ad and Back to the show. So anyway, right, there's there's a like a lot of really interesting like class stratification that happens in the early modern theater. Um that uh, sort of starts to, um, I guess, like crumble as the theater becomes more of an institution, right? Because, uh, as, as if I'm understanding Bloom right, basically, like as uh, sort of the uh, higher class of audience member becomes more invested in actually going to the theater, right? When because these plays are good at sort of enlisting your affect through their staging of games or whatever. Um, they make a these spectators sort of aware of how much they have distanced themselves from the actual thing that they are paying for. Hmm. Um, and she reads this through uh, two plays, um, Arden of Faversham, and, which is an, an anonymous play, although parts of it have been attributed to Shakespeare, um, so do with that what you will. Um, and uh, Henry Porter's Two Angry Women of Abington, uh, I have not read the Porter play. This is the only play that she talks about that I haven't read. I have read Arden of Faversham, and I want to say this play is hilarious. You wouldn't know it by the way that she talks about it, but I don't know if other people understand it in the way that I do, which is to say it's basically a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> um, so Arden of Faversham is based on a real thing that happened. It was a murder. Um, basically, this wife uh, in like was having an affair, and with her husband was Arden, and he was a sort of up and coming landowner. Um, and she kind of gets her lover, like she wants her lover to have him killed, right? So then they can be together and she'll like inherit all of Arden's uh, lands. Um, and they hire a, a group of like three assassins who are just like the most wildly incompetent people in the world. (laughs) And she talks about, uh, Bloom talks about how this play reads because it's literally like, so Arden is going into London for some business. And so the, the assassins follow him and 
we have something like seven scenes, like seven consecutive scenes of the assassins being like, all right, like here it is like time to murder this guy. And then it just goes wrong, right? Like a fog (laughs) descends on the street and they can't find him anymore. Um, or like, I don't you know, just something goes like it, 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 it. They're just so wildly incompetent that it is hilarious. And then at the end, he actually like gets bloodily murdered in his house. Kind of, um, a, uh, kind of a Mr. Magoo scenario. Yeah. And this ties in with um, the argument that Bloom is making about scopic dominance, right? The uh, between sort of back. So backgammon um, as a kind of board game, right, is a game of almost. Well, I guess it's technically is a game of perfect information in a sense in that you know where the other players pieces are and you know where your pieces are but there's also an element of chance Mm -hmm. like how many how many spaces a a piece or a blot as they are called uh, in this time how many places a blot can move on the backgammon board is um dependent on the roll of the dice Mm -hmm. um and so she makes a, a sort of analogy between how these uh, assassins are trying to chase Arden uh, through London to kill him, but then by chance, right, things keep intervening that keep them from actually following through. Um, and so, uh, you know, what happens for the people in the high seats in the galleries is they're looking down and they can see all of this happening. And they can see all of these failures coming, um, but at the same time, when the actual backgammon uh, game shows up at the end of the play, because this is uh, when he gets murdered, right? He's playing backgammon uh, with mm. his wife. Um, you know, they can't see the board, right? They are actually abstracted from the action in a way uh, that makes their their sort of like investment in the play lesser. If that makes sense right their ability Um, yeah if if bloom is right and your ability to invest in these plays and to understand yourself as an audience is a hundred percent hinging on your ability to understand gameplay then yeah yeah so um as bloom puts it right the staging of the scene um this is the murder scene during the the game of backgammon uh, belies a mythos of scopic dominance insisting that theatrical pleasure the sense of climax experienced with Mosby's gesture of casting casting the dice is possible only when spectators use all their senses to play along with the game, becoming involved cognitively and emotionally with its unpredictable risks and aggressive interactions. So um, she's essentially arguing, right, that uh, going down from the gallery seats into the, the unknown of basically the poor people's seats uh, would in fact or might in fact give you a better sense of like the play more enjoyment in the play mm-hmm. of course what happens is not that the people come down from the galleries and hang out with the groundlings what they do is they build their own theaters where they can sit right up next to the stage <laughs> um take that playwright yeah um so yeah um that's sort of uh that that reading and as it said uh i haven't read the two angry women of the two angry women of abington um but the reading here is really interesting because it is a basic it's a it's a comedy it's not a it's an actual comedy i guess where i i guess faversham is maybe sometimes an inadvertent comedy um two angry women of abington is about uh two women from abington who are angry but they get angry because they're playing a backgammon game and they are using the backgammon game to kind of express other tensions that are between them um 
and their husbands are sort of watching this play or like they're watching this game happen and they themselves have also kind of extracted themselves from the actual like gameplay right they're not sort of like they're they are more interested in their own running commentary than paying attention to what their wives are doing so they don't realize that their wives are actually genuinely arguing and this spills over into a a confrontation and a feud that uh sort of by the logic of the play uh, should have should not have happened right could be remedied if uh, the men were less invested in being sort of removed and like uh, sort of above their wives in a certain way um, and sort of like the other patriarchal um, aspect of this right basically if the husbands were more invested in managing their wives hmm. so yeah uh, and then we talk about goose goose games yes yes and we talk about goose games because this is also the play where uh the the epilogue um presented to the audience uh compares the like the negative reception by the audience like booze and hissing to the hissing of an angry goose Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and this uh allows bloom to pivot into uh this reading of i guess i guess kind of the one of the first like big board games like I don't know how to describe this um there yeah, is something I, different here uh it's not like backgammon it's not like chess right it's a board game in the sense of like monopoly is a board game or yeah. Candyland, right um it's called the royal game of the goose um which is like this weird sort of like spiral shoots and ladders kind of board game that apparently gets popular during this time um and because uh like the the progress across the board becomes non-linear um you have to sort of necessarily like uh, I don't like everyone who is playing the game is sort of open to all of the same kind of vagaries of chance. Kind of a uh, a classic. Don't wake daddy. Yes, <laughs> if, if people remember that game from the nineteen nineties. Yes, um, do you want to unpack that just a little bit? On uh, how don't wake daddy. I, yeah, don't wake daddy was like a game that had a weird timer on it. Um, Mm -hmm. a timer and also like maybe if you vibrated the board and so you're playing this kind of non-linear game and that you're traveling around uh, to like collect cards I think or something like that Um, Mm -hmm. but you're also hoping that during your turn you don't wake this weird little plastic thing that will stand (laughs) up and like bounce all the pieces around and scare the crap out of you Um, but you all have a chance of doing it on accident and yet you don't want to and you all have different goals at the time but the goals are sort of the same you know, like the goose game. <laughs> yes. So, um, right. The, the idea here being that like, uh, there is something potentially leveling deeply socially leveling about certain forms of play. Um, and that's of course like ties into this other argument about the actual structure of the theater and who's paying to sit where, uh, mm-hmm. So she says, because of the ways early moderns thought about the senses, their theater was especially well positioned to show how playgoers' bodies could participate vicariously in the action on the boards. To unpack that just a little bit, the early modern understanding of of the senses uh, derives from um, kind of older classical understandings of uh, how the body worked. Um, Some of this comes out of Aristotle, but other classical thinkers are here too, where essentially like your five senses... Um, are all kind of distinct things, right? So your smell and your touch and your so on. Um, 
you have these sort of organs or like parts of your body that are geared to take in certain types of information and then they get synthesized in your interior common like what is called common sense um so one of the things like we use common sense just to mean like what is obvious but in this time period common sense meant literally like the thing that we all have in common like the little like synthesizing mechanism in our brains that allows us to um sort of synthesize uh, sense data the faculty of judgment as Kant yes, would say exactly it's it, yes it's Kant's faculty of judgment um so <clears throat> um by sort of uh stressing that uh that uh com- like common really but like uh, i'm trying to come up with a better word like shared. universal shared yeah shared uh, method of embodiment, right? That's one way of um, socially leveling in the theater. Hmm. Or rather, um, the theater could exploit that. We should uh, we should write an article where we take this, uh, like, four pages of goose analysis, and then mm-hmm. when Untitled Goose Game comes out... Oh, my God. Yes. Yep. And just, we just should. keep on going. Oh, my gosh, the socially leveling figure of the goose. That is exactly <laughs> what Untitled Goose Game is about, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that everyone can be affected by a rude goose yeah that you have no protection farmer (laughs) slash gardener so if you don't know about what this game is that we're talking about it's it's called the untitled goose game um you can look it up and it's a game where you play a goose in a small village in i think australia um and as this goose you wander around and you just make people's lives hell (laughs) like you Mm -hmm. you it's, it's sort of a puzzle game, but, like, you know, you have a map and there are people doing kind of their things. And as the goose, you have to do things like, you know, move the gardener's trowel so he can't find it. Yes. <laughs> and, and steal right. his keys. Yes. So, uh, yeah, no, so there's <laughs> looking forward to our joint article on, on, on geese and game studies. Original article, do not steal. Yep. Copyright um, right now. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, that's sort of how backgammon, uh, sort of goes out there, right? Um, Mm -hmm. it, like, board games, on the one hand, give us this means of thinking about scopic dominance, um, and on the other hand, uh, plays can kind of chip away at that, um, or rather, like, scopic dominance is not the best way to engage with plays, is, is what these plays seem to show. Mm Mm-hmm. We're all going to see things differently from different perspectives. Golly, it was the it was the uh, lessons we learned along the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you have anything else to say about that? I don't. I have like all kinds of like small things to talk about, but I feel like we we've spent a minute on this chapter. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's there's interesting stuff here. Like she gets into proprioception a little bit, which is which oh, was right. a very hot thing in film studies maybe five years ago. Um, and people still do that work, but I think it's a little less uh, accelerated like it was. It was like the only thing people talked about for a while, which is just <laughs> to say that there are uh, moments in which there are or there are media in which your uh, basic ability to navigate the world, your proprioception system, um, mm-hmm. which is a system of visuality that humans have, um, that that gets aligned or unaligned from... Uh, from media and that alignment or unalignment is tactical and produces certain effects so there's a famous article I forget by who uh, apologies but about the Gus Van Sant film Elephant 
which mm. has this kind of floating ephemeral moving camera that does all kinds mm-hmm. of interesting stuff. Um, and that article makes the argument, you know, that that floating camera by aligning sometimes with the way that we see the world in other ways with not, uh, it allows the, the, the movie to, to make us feel particular ways. It's a, it's a formal argument that aligns with, uh, our neuro neurological system. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, think about when you see a movie that has shaky cam and you can't figure out why it has shaky cam or it bothers you. That is your pre-prioceptive <laughs> system saying, telling you something is wrong. Hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. It's, yeah. It's uh, big. There's a lot of stuff to read if people are interested in reading about that. Um, and that often gets tied into like uh, the argument about mirror neurons, which is to say mm-hmm. that there are neurons in certain monkeys not apes i think but monkeys that we have have looked at that are mimetic meaning that they can see something you know they um see another monkey putting food in their mouth and the part of their brain that is associated with taste and with pleasure from food that lights up Mm-hmm. And so that is uh, the argument around that is that humans have that or some version of that. And it means that things that you see align with your own tastes and pleasures. So mm-hmm. when we see someone eating food that we like in a film, we have some sort of vicarious feeling uh, mm-hmm. about that. Now, that has been used to justify a thousand different arguments. <laughs> right. um, and you can imagine how that probably that can go. It can be a little overstated, but it's certainly something that is interesting. Right. And also just to note that that is one of the reasons why this shows up here is like that aligns very, very much with the way that early moderns thought about common sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we all have common sense. We all have sort of certain basic reactions that we share. Um, And the the example that they use, actually. So and as also in the modern times. Right. uh, This gets used to justify a lot of things such as magic. Um, (laughs) Like, so, you know, you, it's <laughs> cool. It's like you're reading like a book on magic from this time period and they'll talk about the com- like common sense and they'll be like, have you ever noticed that when someone yawns, uh, you'll also yawn? Well, that's magic, right? Because <laughs> that's the common sense, right? The common sense is someone else does this thing and it activates in you the the same kind of instinct or mechanism. And a lot of certain magicians or like... I guess magicians or occultists of this time talk about how, um, you know, magic is nothing more than like, uh, 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 um, the Italian sort of humanist talks about this a lot. Uh, magic is nothing more than kind of, um, inspiring the, the imagination of something that then causes the other person to take action. Some real Grant Morrison chaos magic. Yes, really very much so. Um, (laughs) uh, and, just to talk about actually streamers also one thing i wanted to mention here how i think this applies to modern contexts is this is like watching a let's play and seeing the person who is pl- or a streamer and seeing seeing a mistake being made that the uh, like the player doesn't notice <laughs> hmm. right this is like watching someone like a video of like a zelda dungeon or something and someone can't figure out like a particular puzzle and i'm sitting there watching it and i'm like tearing my hair out because i just want to reach through the screen and be like it's right there you're missing the door that you need to go through right um so anyway <laughs> like many uh, people who watch mages and murder dads and are mad that we do things that they right? really do That's, right exactly mm-hmm. right scopic dominance right how about it uh so yeah the um, fourth chapter is about chess yep um and this gets really cool 
Um, yeah, you got because, a lot of notes here, buddy. I do. <laughs> um, so, uh, just to say what uh, Bloom says, quote, when dramas stage chess, they capitalize on its status as a game of perfect information. Uh, that is to say, like, everyone knows where all of the pieces on the board are at all times. Um, and then to solicit and sometimes frustrate theater spectators' application of their knowledge to the game. Um, so both of the plays that are talked about here are very deeply political because, of course, uh, chess has a kind of political, uh, like, skin to it. Um, and the plays she talks about are Shakespeare's The Tempest from 1611 or thereabouts and Thomas Middleton's A Game at Chess from uh, 1624. And both of these plays... Um, stage chess in different ways but both of them stage chess like as a way of dealing with the topic of dynastic marriage in in early modern uh monarchies so in the tempest what happens is uh prospero who is the deposed duke of of milan uh, has been exiled to an island with his daughter and he's uh you know enslaved a bunch of magical creatures essentially uh and force them to take care of him and his daughter for however long he's been out. And he finally gets to the point where uh, the guy who deposed him, his brother, and all of his cronies are passing by, and he can summon a storm and force them to crash on the island. Uh, and then he spends basically the entire play sort of splitting everyone up and manipulating them and, like, you know, think of think of this as like a chess game, right? Moving these characters around in order to change their uh, dispositions and orientations to their lives into the until the very end of the play, where he can kind of step forward and be like, "Hey, it's me. Remember how you screwed me over? Well, I'm going to be merciful and not kill you all <laughs> um, if you let me come back." And one of the ways that he sort of finishes uh, this is he has his daughter married to uh, the son of the guy who got in like basically his brother sold him out uh he partnered with another duke um and uh then made milan a, a tributary right uh so his prospero's dukedom lost its independence um and what prospero ends up doing is he marries his daughter to the son of the guy who uh, Milan has uh, lost its independence too, right? Hmm. So that entire problem gets solved through dynastic marriage. Suddenly, it doesn't matter the, that uh, Milan is no longer independent because the queen, the rightful queen of Milan, is also the the rightful queen of Naples. Um, but when this gets kind of revealed, <clears throat> Ferdinand, uh, the son, and Miranda Prospero's daughter are revealed uh, playing a game of chess, and it's a very strange moment. Um, because they're like hidden, they're like clearly hidden on the stage in a little space called like the discovery space that's uh, that was like covered by a curtain. So like Prospero pulls back this curtain to like reveal to everyone like, look at this, I've made them fall in love. And everyone is uh, appropriately, I guess, astounded. Uh, but what is really weird about the scene that Bloom points out, and I'm not sure if I've read much on this on this point, is that uh, Miranda accuses Ferdinand of cheating. Hmm. Like, in just in passing, and not in, like, a very serious way, but in a sort of playful way. Um, you know, she she says, uh, basically, she says, you know, are you playing me false? You know, are you cheating? Yeah. And one of the, the, the problems with this play is everything is so kind of 
engineered by Prospero. He seems so in control of so many things, or he can, uh, that it becomes hard to find the places where his plan is not like a total, like ideological fantasy of patriarchal control. Mm. Um, and Bloom argues that this is one of the places where that fantasy actually is shown to be just a fantasy because no matter how much Prospero works to get Miranda and Ferdinand together, like he could always cheat on her, right? He could always play her false. And like, because cheating is inherent to games themselves, which is a point that Bloom makes a couple times. Um, it's, it's similar to kind of the, the first chapter on, on humanism and friendship, right? There is always going to be an asymmetry in that someone, even in a game of perfect information, someone can do something, um, against sort of the better interest or like without the knowledge of the other player. So, um, although audiences then, this is Bloom, like scholars today may have been invested in ascertaining whether Ferdinand is playing honestly, what matters here is not what for, is not whether Ferdinand cheats, but that the play withholds the answer to that question, right? Um, so the audience, from their point of view, like they can't even probably really see the board very well. There's no way to independently ascertain if he even is cheating, right? She just raises the possibility, Miranda does. Um, and in that way, we see for Bloom um, that this entire kind of like future that Prospero has written out may in fact fall to pieces. Hmm. <laughs> well, what do you... So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the cheating and, and I'm actually bringing mm-hmm. up or I'm pulling up... Um, uh, one of the Benjamin pieces. Oh, right. This is also where we talk about. Yeah, Benjamin is in here as well. Yeah, um, and that's you know this 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 speaks to our different interests uh, in in this book, right? Because I immediately uh, keyed in on that. Um, and sorry, I'm just pulling up my PDF of Illuminations. So if you have a copy of Illuminations, Theses on the Philosophy of History is mm-hmm. kind of uh, most famously translated there. But I. Um, she, it's very interesting the way that she does this, um, Mm -hmm. the way that this moves because she reads the Benjamin as being about cheating Mm -hmm. or emblematic of cheating. Yes. And I was hoping you would talk about this because I feel like you have a better handle on it than I do. (laughs) Well, what what is interesting to me is the word cheating doesn't show up. And I don't think the, I've looked at a couple of translations, um, since since reading this to be like oh did i just you know because they're it's you know written it, it's written originally in german it's uh written by benjamin in the 30s mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the last pieces he writes it's published by hannah Arendt later much later um and um well actually i guess he worked on it for several <coughs> years but in, in any case um so there are different versions so i was just wondering but so yeah, as as you're saying, this kind of reading of the Tempest and the reading of this other piece, a game at chess, um, does does all the same stuff that 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 games have been doing throughout this entire book. But then it has this relationship of asymmetry of not just information, but asymmetry of um, intent, right? Mm-hmm. That that there are manipulations that one could do, like you're talking about with Ferdinand and cheating. But um, just all kinds of extracurricular, for lack of a better term, um, activities that then impact the game. So, mm-hmm. so the game is the world, and the world is the game uh, to some mm-hmm. degree. But so I'll read the the section here. Um, it's this is the first 
theses on the philosophy of history or on the concept of history, depending on um, how the title is translated. It's in several sections. It's kind of this strange piece. It's in 18 uh, like kind of paragraph pieces, and they're all meant to be read as a constellation, what, what Benjamin and Benjamin scholars call a constellation. So you're supposed to kind of take them, and they kind of are related to one another, but sometimes they're not, and the work of doing the reading is figuring out the unify, the, what unifies them all. Okay, mm-hmm. so It's kind of like a schemata. Um, so this is the, the version that's probably easiest for everyone to get. Of course, this will be linked in our little uh, reference document or whatever, but this is uh, from Marxist.org. Uh, Benjamin was part of the uh, the Frankfurt School, or kind of a fellow traveler with the the Frankfurt School, um, mm-hmm. and so gets often counted as a Marxist. Although he had a complicated relationship uh, with <laughs> that. <clears throat> this is all him. It is well known that an automaton once existed, which was so constructed that it could counter any move of a chess player with a counter move, and thereby assure itself of a victory in the match. A puppet in Turkish attire, water pipe in mouth, sat before the chessboard, which rested on a broad table. Through a system of mirrors, the illusion was created that this table was transparent from all sides. In truth, a hunchback dwarf who was a master chess player sat inside, controlling the hands of the puppet with strings. One can envision a corresponding object to this apparatus in philosophy. The puppet called historical materialism is always supposed to win. It can do this with no further ado against any opponent so long as it employs the services of theology, which, as everyone knows, is small and ugly and must be caught, kept out of sight. So there are all kinds of problems going on with that that, that you can key <laughs> into. If this is this is very unfair uh, to to anyone who might feel that they are targeted by this. Mm-hmm. Um but it is in service to an argument about the relationship between historical materialism, so Marxism uh, in a general sense, and the providence of theology. Mm-hmm. Meaning that theology sees time as a linear system in which where we are now and where we are going are separated by the revelation or uh, the potential for something better to occur. Mm-hmm. And so historical materialism, this is, this is, I think, the traditional reading of this, and this is my reading of this, right? The idea here is that the puppet that always wins, that can always manipulate to find the best possible counter move, right? Dialectics, mm-hmm. what, Marxist, what Marxists would say we are, would do by seizing a factory, that it can only generate that move, right? So the idea that capitalists create um, factories and that Marxists can seize them or that uh, capitalists can create uh, a university structure that's deeply neoliberal and that um, Marxists can go in and seize those classrooms and then bend them to their own will, that that is only that possible liberation or that possible better future of full communism or whatever is only possible by using theology by using mm-hmm. this idea of a utopian possible future of a time to come that is providential and better than the time now mm-hmm. and so i don't think in my reading of that is that has nothing to do with like the actual mechanics of a game or of cheating <laughs> right that, that right there's something else that's going on here historical materialism isn't cheating here historical materialism is manipulated by something else Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually what is the um, uh, it's kind of like Cyrano Bergerac, yeah. More than yeah. more than anything else, right? In the sense of it is someone speaking for some something else. Mm-hmm. 
I think um, one thing that might be illuminating here is to uh, sort of contextualize, like, so Bloom is, like, bopping around between, like, three historical periods, right, which is mm-hmm. part of what makes this complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, when we when we realize that, like, chess here is also, is intended very much to be a kind of, like, political monarchical thing, yeah. um, one thing to really keep in mind about early modern England uh, was that history for them was providential mm-hmm. in, in much the same way that, like, uh, the most vulgar reading of, of Marxism is can be providential, right? Like, all roads are leading to communism, right? It's just the way that, like, materials are going to work themselves out. Um, So, you know, like, uh, in 1588, when the Spanish Armada is sailing for England and a storm comes through and just decimates them, um, why does that happen? Well, because God wanted it to. Yeah. Right? Like, God is conceived of as kind of this chess player who is specifically intervening in human affairs through, like, the the socio-political um, institution of England. So, the, the, the like, uh, weird things happen, like, uh, you know, why did the War of the Roses happen? Right? Like, this huge, bloody civil war that was immensely traumatic. Well... Um, if you're alive in in the 1590s, the the English Civil War happened, so Queen Elizabeth could become queen, mm-hmm. right? Like without the the circumstances that were the English Civil War, there never would have been like Elizabeth ascending to the throne in the way that she did. So everything becomes kind of retroactively justified, um, and sort of like you know, there's there's like a plan or there's a plot to the world, and we're just following it, and God is shuffling around all of the pieces. Um, so I think to some extent, right, like that's one of the reasons why Benjamin comes in here in the way that he does, because there is uh, a totalizing gesture of uh, providential history in, in early modern England. Yeah. Um, and then what ends up being kind of interesting, like that I don't quite know. So between sort of your understanding of Benjamin or the way that you've presented him and then the way that I see Bloom using Benjamin, then we move into this weird third space where... Um, Bloom essentially argues that these chess matches, these stage chess matches, uh, get people to think about history not as providential. Yeah. Right? But not as, like, oh, God is this chess player and, like, everything is kind of just moving according to his machinery, um, but as kind of, like, uh, multivalent and polytemporal, right? In the same way that, like, when you are playing chess, you have several moves you can make at any given point in time. And when you're playing chess, what you do is you make a move and then you, or like you think about making a move and then you think what is going to be the response to be, to me making this move. And then what could be my response to making this move and so on and so forth. Right. Um, you start seeing how uh, the the gameplay could unfold in multiple directions and you have to kind of like start picking and choosing which strategies you're going to pursue and which ones you're kind of going to let uh, fall to the side. Um, and so in some weird way, uh, this this experience of playing chess uh, for Bloom um, becomes a way that the theater is teaching people to think about uh, dynastic history. Yeah. And, and that's maybe my my difference in reading of Benjamin here mm-hmm. is that 
it, it, is that I think with section one, I think you can get to that reading, but the, the kind of famous section or the one that gets quoted all the time from theses on philosophy of history is the document of barbarism section. Mm-hmm. And it's in that argument, it's in that section where he explicitly kind of addresses the way that uh, historical materialism uses this kind of providential heart or this theological heart in order to always be able to claim its own victory in instances mm-hmm. where it it does work out. And he's saying that this is a shared system. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for, for him, anytime you're going to be winning that game of chess, no matter what your um, decisions uh, were, those were always the right decisions to make, right? Um, like, uh, good decisions are always retroactive. So so he says this is uh, in section seven. Um, he's talking about Flaubert, and then he says, the nature of this melancholy becomes clearer once one asks the question, with whom does the historical writer of historicism actually empathize? Uh, the mm-hmm. answer is irrefutably with the victor. Those who are current, those who currently rule, are however the heirs of all of those who have ever been victorious. Empathy with the victors thus comes to benefit the current rulers every time. This says quite enough to the historical materialist. Whoever until this day emerges victorious marches in the triumphal procession in which today's rulers tread over those who were sprawled underfoot. The spoils are, as was ever the case, carried along in the triumphal procession. They are known as the cultural heritage. In the historical materialist, they have to reckon with a distanced observer. For what he surveys as the cultural heritage is part and parcel of a lineage which cannot, which he cannot contemplate without horror. It owes its existence not only to the toil of the great geniuses who created it, but also to the nameless drudgery of its contemporaries. There has never been a document of culture which is not simultaneously one of barbarism. Right, so like Benjamin is playing both sides of the game, but but mm-hmm. I, I I mean maybe this is just my reading of the piece, but it's never not providential in that even historical materialism has to reckon with the process of puppetry, as it as it were. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got to, everyone who wins has to play this game, even if the historical materialist knows it isn't true. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, I think I think I agree. I am not sure to what degree this this gets resolved here, right? Because that that was my sort of thinking about uh, you. You know the Benjamin much better than me. But when I was reading this part, I was like, I think this is interesting, and also like I'm. I think there's like another part to this for Benjamin that maybe isn't being addressed here. Um, like, what do we do? Like for for Benjamin, um, this is maybe uncharitable. Um, because I like him a lot, right? But there's a kind of cynicism to that way of thinking, oh, right? Yeah. That you, a right? Percent. Um, and I think for Bloom, Bloom is seeing this as like not very cynical at all, right? It's it's a, uh, it's like cracking open the world essentially, right? History becomes almost, um, uh, how does she da, 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 spectators? Uh, nope, that's not the right. <laughs> I had a quote that I wanted to read on this. Okay, yes, no, these. Uh, uh, my God, you're gonna cut this out. How did I lose that quote? Which one? What's it? Uh, it's something about seeing history as an endless series of chess matches or something. Hmm. Uh, one sixty-nine. Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, because for Bloom, what ends up happening, right, is these these ways of staging um, political dynasties uh, or like political matchmaking as as uh, chess matches, right, uh, urges spectators to, and how she puts it is, treat the plays as part of a temporally and spatially diffuse network of chess matches. Um, so it almost becomes a, like like it reminds me of like Delanda, right, like. Uh, like Manuel Delanda, like uh, this sort of weird, like ever increasing virtuality of potential chess matches that could or could not have happened or did or did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just to like briefly talk about the other play that she she discusses here, aside from the Tempest, right? Thomas Middleton's uh, The Game at Chess, sixteen twenty four wildly popular runs for a week, gets shut down, never gets staged again um, because it is. <laughs> Like, it is political dynamite, right? Like, it is sort of incredible that Middleton was not, like, arrested for a good long time. Um, Because essentially what was going on in England at this moment was King James uh, was sort of interested in making peace with Spain. Um, Sort of like, you know, improving those relationships. Um, So uh, there was sort of talk about joining... uh, joining the the kingdom of spain and uh england or actually what would have been britain at that time because uh james was also king of scotland um sort of a a a royal marriage right what they called the spanish match um where james sent his son down uh with um some advisors and uh they were sort of working through whether or not uh james's son might marry one of the spanish princesses um England, generally speaking, the people of England um, were not terribly hot on this idea on account of how much they hated Catholics. Um, (laughs) uh, This is just a fact of the matter. And, uh, you know, Middleton, who is who is very sort of Calvinist in kind of his outlook, I think, um, obviously didn't agree with this. So he has this play called uh, A Game at Chess, where it is not about the Spanish match, right? But it is definitely about the Spanish match hmm. because, uh, you know, there are these characters who are all just chess pieces, right? There are no actual, like, people, humans in this play. Um, it's the two houses, white and black, and black is obviously Spain, um, and they have, like, monks and stuff. And then there's the White House, which is obviously England or Albion um, because Albion has, has that etymology for the White Cliffs. Uh, and, uh, you know, everything like the the entire time the black house is constantly like lying and manipulating and being untrustworthy and in the end um thanks to you know sort of the grace of 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 good protestant values and and the white knight and everything uh the the match is averted right the the scheming match to like marry the two houses and they're kept distinct uh so because this is pointed political satire uh is very, very popular, but then also gets shut down. And uh, for Bloom, this is kind of an interesting sort of flashpoint uh, where the game becomes the stage. And the, the it's not the, the game, like this play is not so much an allegory, um, although there are definitely allegorical elements. Um, it is more about uh, teaching people to understand like political maneuvering in the world as a a chess game that is not locked into any one particular strategy but could actually go in multiple directions Hmm. so um yeah 
Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to say about chess? Nope. I do not. I was <clears throat> taking a moment and allowing you mm-hmm. any breathing space. No, I don't. Uh, but yeah, uh, other than... I mean, I thought that the stuff about the mole in Hamlet is interesting. Oh, but I, not really yeah. a thing like... I'm not deep enough in Hamlet to like know about moles, <laughs> you know, yeah. like to know all these like comparative readings of moles. I do like that uh, she gets to Derrida's reading, and mm-hmm. it's like Derrida hates that mole. He's out oh, of there. Oh, he does. Um, right. Which is good. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess that for anyone who's listening, right, that can illuminate some of some of the Benjamin stuff, right? So, uh, Hamlet uh, calls his father's ghost old mole because. Uh, Probably, basically, what happened was the actor who was playing Hamlet's father's ghost, like old Hamlet, like old Hamlet shows up and he's a ghost and he's spooky and he's like, here's all the spooky things I'm doing as a ghost. Like, you gotta kill, gotta kill your uncle because he killed me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he disappears. Um, And he goes, like the actor who is playing the ghost goes under the stage boards and is like talking up through the, up tucking up through them to the other characters, right? He's going, he's like trying to get them to swear um, basically that they will take vengeance. So there's someone under the stage boards going like swear and probably like, you know, bonking around and making noises and being generally creepy. Um, and Hamlet is like, you know, he calls him the old mole because mm-hmm. it's this thing underneath the ground. Um, so Marx picks up um, this image from Hamlet of the old mole kind of just like working through um like the earth toward whatever its goal is. Uh, And he sees this as kind of a a way of thinking about um, historical materialism, right? Like uh, the, the sort of system of the world is kind of just tunneling forward toward, uh, you know, in its kind of Hegelian way, right? Toward, toward communism, right? This is what the communist project should be is, is this underground thing like in Europe, like getting ready to just like pop up and totally disrupt the state in the same way that old Hamlet's ghost is this kind of weird remainder of a past social order that then, um, causes basically the, the social order itself to like deconstruct. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, Derrida, uh, gets to this and he hates the mole. <laughs> he's like, get he's that like, damn mole out of here. Get that mole away. Um, as, because as Bloom points out, really what happens when the mole, like, you know, keeps tunneling and eventually gets to where it's going, it pops up out of the surface and someone kills it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in Margareta de Grazia, uh, talks about, uh, Derrida and the mole and Marx. And, um, this is, Oh, gosh, I don't know which book actually she's pulling from here, which book um, Bloom is pulling from. It might be Shakespeare's Ghostwriters, um, which is where she covers like Freud. Uh, de Grazia covers like Freud and all of these other thinkers and basically shows how um, certain Shakespearean images get embedded into uh, way like ways of thinking. So hmm. when we look at Shakespeare and we're like, wow, this is really Marxist. <laughs> um, sure. What what uh, De Grazia says is like, well, really, what happened is Marxism is Shakespearean, right? Like Marx took certain Shakespearean ideas and he knit them into his kind of intellectual system. So it shouldn't really be that surprising when we look at a Shakespeare play and see like a Marxist reading emerge, yeah, <laughs> because Marx was reading Shakespeare. Um, so anyway, uh, you know. Uh, what de Grazia and Derrida end up doing is moving from the teleology of kind of like that narrow, like linear history toward, um, well, hauntology uh, is what Bloom pulls out. And for um, Bloom in this instance, hauntology seems to be a way of thinking about all of the moves that could have been made, but weren't. Hmm. 
right? Or the moves that can be made but won't be, or the moves that aren't made yet, right? Um, so that kind of uh, way of thinking of history as not kind of a, a linear progression, but a uh, weird confluence, a recurring confluence of various factors. Yeah, yeah the properly historical materialist uh, way yeah. of doing it. Right. So, uh, and that sort of takes us through the end to the epilogue where we talk about video games. What? What? <laughs> um, so, yeah, the epilogue is called The Theatricality of Mimetic Game Interfaces. Uh, and this is largely about the Microsoft Connect. Uh, Cameron, do you want to talk about this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let me let me set up the... I'm, I'm going to kind of invert this chapter a little bit because the thing okay. that I'm interested in is kind of like the middle half and, and, and you can speak with some sort of expertise about what she actually says. So um, let me flip this around a little bit. Okay. So when the Kinect was announced <laughs> at the Microsoft uh, at E3, at the Electronic Entertainment Expo, Microsoft had a big stage show like they do all the time. And on that mm-hmm. stage show, there were all these people who were dressed as quote unquote island dwellers, island inhabitants. Sorry. And those island inhabitants did things like play drums and do quote-unquote primitive dances. And a young boy showed up, and he was riding an elephant. And the, I don't know, this whole thing is bizarre and weird and bad. <laughs> and, um, and, but basically this like weird metaphor that was being set up with the Kinect is that the next discovery, bum 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 discovery, with all of the colonialism and all the interesting bad stuff associated with the idea of discovery uh, in in uh, it, you know in the past several hundred years, uh, uh, the human body and the human mimetic interface, what Jesper Yule calls a mimetic interface, is mm-hmm. that's the the quite literally brave new world, right? That is the mm-hmm. the expansion territory of gaming. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft itself, as as an entity, frames it in this way in order for that kid to go stand on a stage and, like, pet a tiger's face or whatever using its hands. Because um, yeah. the Kinect is just a motion capture device, basically. It, it uh, reads points on your body. It's going to identify your hands. It's going to identify the shape of your body. It's going to identify your face. And then it's gonna, it uses that to uh, project you into a digital space uh, so you can... I don't know, pet pet an animal in connectimals or do other stuff in connect games, uh, none of which I know. <laughs> like, I can't think of another actual connect game uh, that I've seen people play or I've played myself. So, there's all this, like, weird, bizarre stuff, and, and uh, Bloom kind of, I mean, she says explicitly, you know, this is the the encounter. This It's staged as a colonial encounter. That they're going to an island is very significant to her because uh, it, it, it lines up with all these other kinds of interpretations of moments around islands. But I kind of wish that Bloom had also spent a little more time talking about how, like, bizarrely strange and racist this is. (laughs) It's like colonialism as the moment of discovery of your own damn body as a game controller. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's a very strange thing. And, um, I mean, what ends up being interesting to me about this is, like, she is interested in motion controls. And I think she's right to be interested in motion controls because they're interesting. Yeah. But also, like... Uh, this particular epilogue, I think, 
falls to the side of a way of the way that like what we might call the gaming public actually thinks about motion controls. Yeah. Which is that like we hate them. <laughs> yeah, that they are in the discourse. Right. So so it all comes from the Wii. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wii brings motion co- controls into the family, becomes one of the best selling consoles of all time in its era. You know, this isn't like a long tail thing. It, it, yeah. You know, it becomes this massively selling Christmas product. And in order to capture some of that audience or to um, take the casual, quote unquote, casual audience that the Wii brought. So your uh, your parents, your uh, grandparents, your small children just the people who are not playing Call of Duty, um, mm-hmm. in order to try to, uh, A, bring that audience into their consoles, and B, uh, combine their core audiences with a more, I don't know, mid-core, I think is, is often the term used for it, a mid-core audience, um, both Microsoft with the Xbox 360 and Sony with the PlayStation 3 created their own motion control devices. Um, so for Microsoft, that was the Kinect, and uh, it was generally derided. I know more people who use it as an art object to make art mm-hmm. pieces than I know people who own them legitimately. Um, they came out kind of two-thirds of the way through the cycle of the Xbox 360 and were initially uh, included as a pack-in with the Xbox One. Um, in the first big major console revision for the Xbox One, they just got rid of the Kinect. They did not mm-hmm. make it part of the bundle anymore because no one was making games for it, basically, and it wasn't very uh, well-loved. Uh, on the PS3 side, they had uh, the PlayStation I? Yeah, I think it was called the PlayStation I. Oh, uh, no, I'm sorry. That was the first one. The second one's the, the PlayStation I was PS2. Uh, PlayStation oh. Move is play, uh, PS3. It's the oh, Kinect okay. competitor, the Wii competitor. And it has those like light-up controllers. Um, as we moved into the PlayStation 4 and kind of created new versions of that, the PlayStation Move actually became part of their VR suite. So they actually have maintained that as part of their stuff. So PlayStation Move controllers are what you use in like a, v, uh, a PSVR first-person shooter, for example. Those are like mm-hmm. your gun or your wands or whatever. So Sony have put made it part of their kind of product catalog, but uniquely, uh, the Kinect is universally hated <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, from a consumer uh, standpoint. Right, right, which is sad because also part of this chapter is Bloom talking about her project Play the Knave, which is a Kinect project, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, which I have played. And um, essentially, it is... Um, uh, I mean, one way of thinking about it would be like Shakespeare karaoke, Uh you sort of like set up like you put together a stage with like a background and you choose like character models and then you and another player have to um stand in front of the connect and like act out the scene while reading um the lines from that scene that go across the screen um and it gets really weird and bizarre because like you're both like trying to watch each other but also watch the screen and like the the motion controls get really strange and your like arm starts like pushing through your chest and you can't figure out how to stop it Mm -hmm. um this is another reason why i think like motion controls generally speaking haven't uh quite been well received is that they're 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 still very very rough compared to what you get from from an actual like controller yeah um and it's it's a really interesting piece uh play the knave is um but it's also like a way for bloom to like make her point about like embodiment in games in the theater um and then sort of 
All that said, I still think this is like, uh, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I think this is a Janet Murray moment Hmm. where um, sort of something is being imagined about the future of these games or these technologies that is maybe not really going to happen just yet. Like things may shift, right? We may get another set of motion controls. um, But um, as I've said before, like I really think a lot of the points that Bloom is making in this book about sort of theatricalism and how it lines up with games uh, comes in with Let's Plays and streaming culture and things like that. Hmm. Um, That is to say, so uh, one of the things that she's saying about the Kinect, right, is that gaming... Uh, is the connect makes gaming um, a social and theatrical space, right? It's not just someone sitting in a room playing a game and it's usually like a couple people or like someone watching someone else. And so one, at least one person there becomes uh, sort of conscious of how they are performing for someone else, right? In that theatrical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really think that's true with like streaming, Right. Like that's where I think this is actually happening. And the vicarious gameplay that she talks about in the other chapters happens sort of um, like almost low level. Right. On the on the conscious consciousness of the viewer, because it's like I know how to play a game. Right. I know what it feels like to play a game so I can watch other people play games and I can get a sense for what it would be like to play this game myself. And it's really nice when I can watch someone else play a game in that maybe I don't have the time or I'm not interested in actually playing, but get a sense of how it feels. And then um, especially if they are a good performer, right? If they're a good host, if they say interesting things, or if it's um, like, if they're interested, like if they're good at showing off bizarre things that the game can do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, what I would have loved here. I mean, I like this argument a lot. I think this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't, and and like you, I don't know if, uh, if I think that, the connect is the like optimal spot mm-hmm. or optimal object to make this argument. But I actually think that just makes the argument stronger uh, in the sense of, I see so many application cases for this across games um, mm-hmm. that like kind of a misalignment here around the object is, you know, maybe the least of my concerns, but I would have really liked to see, and, and I hope that someone kind of picks this up listeners who are, are interested in writing about games. Someone should write this piece about sports and yeah. and this right that that mm-hmm. there is something interesting about sports and performance and vicarious what she ends up calling vicarious play which i think will or vicarious gaming which we can talk about in a, in a second but that's that's always going on in sports like i don't i don't care about basketball even a little bit like zero mm-hmm. but like when steph curry a few years ago was making his big run of like three point shots and he was becoming known as just the person who could sink three points from anywhere on the court i watched a lot of basketball clips <laughs> and it, and it's this exact thing right if i have a uh, i have a phenomenological understanding of what it means to do this i played basketball before um but i don't particularly care about it in the abstract but it's a particular kind of performance and this kind of call and response of fan culture of of community whatever right that is in training me into caring about this kind of performance and is disciplining me into a particular kind of um that's that's catching me uh back into my own language, right? This is not language yeah. would be used, but it's pushing me into uh, a particular mode of spectatorship and a particular mode of understanding basketball during a time period. Mm-hmm. And to me, that kind of, I don't know, 
but pseudo alignment where I'm able to feel a thing and kind of understand how a thing works yet not be particularly invested in it. That feels a lot like me or to me, that's just the culmination of her phenomenology argument, right? That she makes in the intro. Uh, what do you think about that, Michael? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's um, for me, I think at least that that's like one of the biggest upshots of this entire book and this entire argument is the way that the phenomenological approach um really allows you to uh understand that like when these games show like it's this doesn't even have to be games really like i think there might be broader applicability for for this way of thinking right when you are familiar with something and like games are i think just happen to be like these board games these sitting pastimes happen to be a good example um when you are familiar with something when you have kind of like experiential knowledge and as you said even if it's not like particularly good or particularly in depth um you can uh when, when those things, those objects, games, or whatever, when those show up in another media context, um, we get a really interesting way of activating kind of viewer or audience investment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost, I mean, you know, it's a little bit of a Bolter and Grusin remediation kind of argument where, like, media are always mediating other media, except um, rather than in, in Bolter and Grusin, which I haven't read remediation in a while at this point, but it feels like um, what happens is the new medium tries to uh, sort of eat up the older media, right? The computer yeah. wants to eat the television screen in order to kind of like gain its power, essentially. Yep. Um, there can be only one. Right. Uh, but here, what happens is the theater isn't really particularly interested in like taking games forever, right? Like games are still going to exist. What the, the theater is kind of doing is strategically picking up other media and other objects and using them as ways to like signal to the audience like here is one way of approaching this, right? Here yeah. is a way of getting into what I am trying to do. Um, yeah. And I think that's really, and I think it's it's good because um, it allows for the coexistence of these media, right? They aren't necessarily kind of like constantly trying to surpass each other in the way that they can be in sort of the the remediation model. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, like it becomes an issue of like how these various cultural arenas, how these various media um, m- make meaning through uh, sort of alliances with other types of media, right? Like this kind of weird collective process. Yeah, and I, just to to kind of close this out or start closing this out, I think that that, for me, is one of the most powerful things about this book, uh, at least analytically, (laughs) is that there is something, I I really like the way that you you have phrased it in relation to kind of the remediation argument, is that there's a linearity of 20th century media uh, around images in particular. But Mm -hmm. the distributedness of games and the different ways that they... I mean, games are systems of pulling things into contact with one another, and so Mm -hmm. is the theater. And that's, you know, basically what what Bloom is trying to to argue throughout this entire book, or not trying to, is arguing throughout this book. Um, And she has a particular way of seeing that. But what I think is the kind of upshot is while Bloom is mostly concerned about thinking the theater with games, I think that kind of flipping that, and this is, you know your disciplinary argument, right? This is the kind of thing uh-huh. that, that you're interested in, is that the the ways that we have seen theater operate 
are happening in in games culture in a lot of different ways. And I think if there's something for someone to take from this book, it's less being concerned about specific readings of plays, or at least, you know, for me, and more that her analytic is so strong and her precision about how these things operate with one another is so strong Mm -hmm. that I think that game study scholars uh, would be wise to pick it up and and actually do that application. Because I want to, I mean, I want to read the piece that's about heavy rain that takes Gina Bloom's argument and and kind of runs wild with it uh, rather than say a film studies argument about uh, or a narratology argument about focalization or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I want to see a Gina Bloom style argument about um, uh, like mass effect, right. And this kind of like theatrical cast of characters where you are part of them, but you're also making decisions for everyone. And what does that mean? I think there's a lot of places to go. Yeah, no, I think that is, um, I mean, of course I loved this book. I love this book so much. <laughs> I want to be very clear about that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's come off that I've disliked it, but I just like, I, I have read few books in the past I, I don't know. Like, I've read few books since my qualifying exams, right, that have made me as excited as reading this book. Um, and I I sort of feel very similarly that, like, uh, you know, I, I, of course, I love all these bizarre readings of, of like, Gammer Gurton's Needle. Um, but I would very much, like, recommend this to game studies people uh, on, on the method alone. Because you may not care about The Tempest, but, like, the ways that these, uh, like the way that this book presents, um, a a way of thinking about how games, uh, are essentially kind of like social attractors, um, Mm -hmm. in, in many, many ways. Uh, like, I think that's extremely cool and could be very, very useful in, in game studies more broadly. I agree. Michael, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me online, uh, on Twitter at sign Warren is dead. Um, you got anything to plug? Uh, not at the moment. Um, no, I've got, uh, some things that I'll probably plug in a later episode because I'm still stuck in, uh, proofing on some things, but (laughs) yes. Uh, where can they find you, Cameron? You can find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman. I don't have anything to plug either. Um, nothing, nothing unique. Um, if, if there's something to plug, it'll be on the Twitter. You can uh, listen to this show and other shows at rangedtouch.com. You can go to youtube.com slash rangedtouch to see other Ranged Touch videos. Of course, Game Study Study Buddies is part of the Ranged Touch network of a few different shows. Um, uh, we, we've got some stuff planned for uh, Ranged Touch in a general sense moving forward in the next uh, few. We are, of course, on Patreon. Uh, you can you can uh, find us on Patreon to search for Ranged Touch. I don't remember what our URL is. Um, but uh, we're hoping to start publishing a couple freelance pieces or, or a freelance piece a month. So please uh, keep your eye on that if you're someone who's interested in writing about game studies-ish stuff. Uh, I think they could be very exciting. Um, Ranch Touch is always looking for new shows as well. So if you uh, have a show that that you think would fit underneath the banner and you're looking for a co-host or you're just looking for a network to be a part of, uh, get at us. Um, we're, we're interested in, in that kind of thing, too. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. All right. And eventually, sometime, we'll come up with a real sign-off. Yep, we still don't have one. Um, our catchphrase, um, 
which is of course the social is determined by its exclusions yeah uh, is, <laughs> just remember until next time the social is determined by its exclusions bye bye <laughs> <laughs>